Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and on this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Jay Ward, who is Director of Ford Europe Product Communications. Welcome to Rearview, Jay. I'd like to start off by asking, what does the Director of Product Communications do? Uh, well, well, hello Andrew first, and, uh, and many thanks for having me on. So, uh, that's a very good question. Um, Broadly speaking, my job is kind of split up into uh, into kind of four areas. So the first of those is uh, all of our products, both current and future, in terms of how we communicate those to media around the world. And, and bear in mind, the world media has kind of taken on a whole new uh, meaning in this day and age. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm going to ask you about so, that later. <laughs> absolutely, it's such a diverse world these days. Um, so that, that's the first part, um, and I'm particularly interested in the strategic side of things. So what is it we're communicating, who are we communicating it to, and how are we going to go about doing that, broadly speaking? Uh, so that's one area. The second area is all of our shows and events. So think of those in old school terms as all the motor shows that we used to know and love, um, but nowadays increasingly taking on kind of standalone events that we, we do, and also events like Goodwood's Festival of Speed or, uh, or, or such like. Mm-hmm. Then the third part of it is all of our media drives. So that's uh, the point at which we put journalists behind the wheel of our cars, uh, wherever that takes place across Europe or indeed around the world. And then the fourth area is our motorsport activities. And, and obviously here in Europe, my predominantly my, my uh, area of focus is on WEC, so the World Endurance Championship, where our Ford GT competes in the GT uh, LM Pro class. Mm-hmm. And then now, of course, uh, increasingly our WRC activities, because you mm-hmm. know we've increased our investments in WRC, so uh, taking on all of that. Uh, and a few of our other more strategic look at other motorsports uh, around the world and, and where we may or may not invest in the future as well. So yeah. that's, um, that's pretty much it, I think. So I'm wondering what you do in the week after Wednesday then. You know, it's <laughs> not much then. Crikey. Okay. Yeah, it's really like I'm play Candy Crush. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty full on and, and, and it's a lot of travel. I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. Uh, lots of people say this, but I am very lucky. I'm surrounded by a great team of people who've, who've been doing the job for a long time and take a lot of the pressure off. Them. But yeah, there's no doubt uh, it's a pretty stressful role at, uh, a lot of the time. Okay. Well, we'll explore uh, all those uh, well, that diverse spread of what you cover uh, later on in the show but i'd like to start like i normally do which is find out when you first got interested in cars that's uh that's a good question so i mean actually it was kind of in the blood i was um albeit i was well i was actually born in in milan in, in the uh in a, a hospital called monza hospital actually overlooking monza park believe it or not <laughs> um so you could have uh, could argue that it was, it was pretty much destiny that i'd end up doing what I do, but actually also um, my family came from Coventry, and uh, a number of them uh, started their lives in the, in the car industry at, uh, at Triumph and a couple of other places as well. So there were, there were cars there always anyway. Well, if your family's from Coventry, I mean, you, you're part uh, yeah, yeah. The petrol. It's, kind of <laughs> it's in the DNA, isn't it? <laughs> exactly right, yeah. Um, so, so that was part of it, I, and I think from a very early age, my, my father was uh, a big lover of cars and, um, and a very good driver himself, and, and I learned a lot from him. And, but I actually started my career in photography, believe it or not. I, um, I abandoned cars initially in my first part of my career. I wanted to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. I decided that I reala- realized that I actually wasn't uh, particularly brilliant at writing, but, but did enjoy photography. So I, uh, I did that for three years, uh, and then cars finally got the better of me and uh, I saw an advert on the front cover of the, the Times newspaper, no less, looking for 
people to join Ford on a on a special scheme that we had to bring in people from outside of the industry. And I applied, and 19 years later, I'm still here. So uh, uh, obviously, uh, we we both liked each other, Ford and I. So how come journalism then? What what attracted you that way? And before you decided that actually, it my wasn't mother for you. was a journalist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. It's kind of very often the way uh, she she was a journalist before um, before I came along, and then actually uh, later on uh, when I was about eleven years old, she went back to journalism works at Coventry Evening Telegraph, and okay. uh, and she yeah she very much kindled my love in, in the written word and, and, and in journalism in general. And then uh, you you were you went to photography and you were doing photography. What what were you photographing? All sorts of things was it, or did you have uh, no, a particular sport? sport? I, okay. I for uh, a company that was then called All Sport Photographic, which is now part of the Getty Images Empire. Oh, okay. And, um, I, I joined there as a, a junior account manager, uh, so I spent my weeks looking after the various sponsors that we um, looked after, so the likes of Nike and Adidas and, and, and so on. Uh, and then I spent more weekends photographing, so I was out there, could be photographing you know, football one week or, or cricket the next, or actually very fortunate to do a number of motorsport uh, activities as well. So it was a great life. Um, it was seven days a week, which, which is great when you're still young, but not great for uh, when you have a relationship with a significant other. And no, it, it can it take its toll. Well. well, just on you as well. I mean, for, forgetting does, that yeah. you're, you know, even if you're young, it's, it still takes a toll if there's no break, no stepping away. Yeah, it's pretty full on. And uh, I mean, I, I was very lucky. I, I got to go to the Olympic Games in '96 in Atlanta and the World Cup in France in '98, as well as the Winter Olympics as well in, in Japan in Nagano. So I was very fortunate. But yeah, as you say, I, I, I didn't uh, I didn't spend a lot of time at home, and, uh, and it didn't pay very well. So mm. uh, so there came a point where my, my kind of deep love for cars got the better of me, and, uh, and yeah, never looked back, as I say. So this was a Ford advertised for people outside the industry to come in, um, which I always think that is. I always think that's a brilliant idea of very large companies uh, or even smaller companies, to be honest, that that look outside and say, you know, we perhaps we don't have all the answers, perhaps we're missing people, perhaps we're not getting the right people that we need or maybe we can get an injection of enthusiasm or something else by looking externally and and finding people who've got a different background uh, and probably a different way of thinking about things um so that that was very interesting that ford did that was that um to your knowledge uh, because i don't know how much you knew about this but was that driven from uh, america or was that a european um or uk only idea it, it actually was predominantly a UK uh, initiative. Actually, Ford of Britain was uh, was my first employer, um, and I think it kind of stemmed from the thought that uh, the business was possibly stagnating slightly in terms of kind of new ideas that were coming in. Um, there were about seventy of us, I think, who joined in that kind of cohort. Uh, this is back in nineteen ninety nine, believe it or not, quite a long time ago now, um, and actually. What's very interesting about that is there's, there's a relatively small numbers, uh, number of us who are still there. And I think Ford, in its infinite wisdom, I think was absolutely doing the right thing back then. I think it, it probably ended up trying to mould us to their way of thinking rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, and I think <laughs> that is the danger, were, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I think a few people sort of fell foul of that uh, and, and kind of you know, weren't, uh, weren't sure it was the right thing. As it happened, Ford's kind of Ford's ethos really appealed to me greatly. I'm, I'm a 
I'm a family person myself, and although it's a terrible cliche to call Ford a family company, there is much to be said for it. And, and one of the things that's very noticeable when you join Ford is you're surrounded by people who've been there for a heck of a long time. I, I had a, um, a retirement party uh, last year for a couple of colleagues of mine uh, who, uh, who were both, uh, both wonderful. We, we worked out that between them they'd done 79 years of service. Uh, just the two of them. So it's uh, it is a company that, that engenders you know a real sense of, of kind of family, and, and I felt very at home here, and I've enjoyed my time. I think for me, what was best really was was the breadth of opportunity, and whether it be I mean, obviously at the time back then we we uh, we owned the Premier Automotive Group, so the likes of Jaguar and Land Rover, Aston Martin, you know, Volvo and Mazda. So there were lots of opportunities there. Mm. There were so many different jobs. I mean, if you love engineering, it's a great company. But if you love marketing or communications or HR or finance or legal or whatever, I mean, there's basically a job to suit anyone. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's a business, and it's a very it big business. So there's there's all those there's all those things that are associated with a big business. Uh, it just happens to be that the businesses of cars and well, mobility now as we move forward uh, into yeah. the future. Uh, and other buzzwords um but but yeah i mean the, the core thing is it's a business that's there to make money so all the dull what people perceive as dull and boring businessy things have to happen otherwise a car doesn't come out of the production line yeah it's very true and it, i think i think what was striking to me when i joined was was just how broad the business was i mean you know at one end of the, of the scale we you know we, we effectively own a bank we are a bank ford credit uh, or ford money as it's known now is is uh, is a is a fully fledged uh, you know bank across the whole of the world so you know if that if that attracts you that's there you know uh, and all the kind of the jobs in, in between that as well so it's the breadth of it is huge i i i would doubt there's anybody on the planet no, no long you know no matter how long you you work in the industry that will fully understand all of the aspects of it because it is astonishingly complex and it, it, it's it's very difficult to condense that down for somebody who really only cares that when they get into their fiesta and and turn the key it, it kind of fires up and that's really yes. as, as interested as they are in it. <laughs> what what goes on behind that is quite astonishing actually and really boggles the mind at times. Even, even for me, you know, nineteen years on, it still boggles my mind at times. Yeah, because it's it's easy to forget that things happen. Uh, you you know they, because the product just is there. You forget all the other stuff that's getting that's gone to get to that point. Um, where did you start when you started on the scheme? Were you did you get the opportunity to choose communications, or did that come further down the line? No, I <laughs> uh, I'm a capital. I say this. I, I started my career as a rent boy. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> okay, that's uh... I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I actually started in marketing, sales, and service, um, and I started as, as a, basically as a van salesman. And my job was to look after small rental companies, and uh, and this was largely because I, I transit, you know, especially in the UK, transit's an iconic mm. nameplate and an iconic vehicle. Um, and we were looking to broaden and grow our, our kind of share of that particular segment. So I would travel I'd do around sixty thousand miles a year. I did actually uh, for two years in a row, uh, traveling up and down the motorways of Britain. So, so changing away from photography is really, you know, meant that you could stay at home a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is exactly. Now, I was home based for a job, so that was, uh, I suppose, that was at least, at least when I eventually got home, I got home. But uh, yeah, no, it was great. It, it was a great introduction to the business because, you know, not only did I learn about the fundamentals of, of kind of, uh, of the business aspects of it, but also 
I got a, a great insight into dealers. Um, and again, it always surprises people when I tell them, uh, you know, if you're not interested in the car industry, if you don't know much about it, that Ford doesn't sell cars. Uh, our dealers sell cars. Um, mm. We just we just build them, engineering them. Um, so actually, understanding how the dealer the dealer system works and, and, and understanding how they are set up as independent businesses is actually critical to, to, to really understanding the industry. And uh, and I got that. You know, uh, it wasn't always um, it wasn't always fun, but for two years I I really learned an awful lot about the business that way. Sort yeah, of a so crash course then. It very much was, yeah. Although effectively no crash. So, yeah, sorry, there's probably not quite <laughs> phrasing that. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, it was very much. And uh, you know, these rental companies are are not interested in in the in the product per se. What I mean by that is, they are not emotional about a brand. They are completely focused on the business. So, what does it cost me to buy it up front? What is it going to cost me to dispose of it at the back end? And in between times, you know, what, what kind of income am I going to get out of that vehicle? Yeah. Um, is it going to spend time off the road? Because if it is, it isn't earning the money. Uh, and that's really all they care about. So you can walk in and say, look, I've got a shiny brand new transit. They don't really give a monkeys. Mm. What they care about is, is the holding, the holding cost. That's, that's what matters. Uh, and it really taught you quickly that you had to go in there well prepared and well armed with all the numbers and the detail and the facts and, and not try and be, um, terribly excited about you know, air conditioning in the in the rear of the van because frankly rental companies don't don't care about that stuff yeah yes <laughs> so um, then where did you move to after the or whereabouts in the business did you go after this this two years of intensive training so it's true, yeah so it's there to um, to dealer advertising oh, okay so again more of a kind of a softer uh, kind of marketing function i would say but but again interesting kind of thing if you think about it ford spends a huge amount of money on tier one advertising uh, you know, around the world and obviously in, in, in the UK. What we were finding though was that we were spending all this money and time and effort to kind of create these beautiful adverts. And then the dealers themselves would go on. And I, I've got a fantastic example um, in my drawer actually at work of a dealer up in Scotland who was advertising a Ford Fiesta. And his killer line was, uh, own this car for the price of a packet of fags a week. And, uh, <laughs> Which you could possibly argue wasn't terribly brand supportive. Um, so, Different times, um, as they say. Exactly. Yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't a lone example. Of quite a few. Uh, so what we what we realised was that we needed to put in place a set of standards that our dealer adverts kind of adhered to, so that they looked and felt like they came from the same company that was mm. producing the tier. So it sounds terribly obvious now, but back then it was a really big deal because. You know, there were there were big dealer groups. A good example is the Polar, the Polar dealer group, who who kind of had invested a lot of time and effort in their their own brand, mm. uh, which perhaps surprisingly featured a Polar. And they were most put out at the thought that we were going to you know have a set of standards they would have to adhere to that would mean they would lose that. But I think in the end they they realised that actually it was to the benefit of of them you know, as a dealer that that our comms and their comms looked the same. Um, well, at the end of the day, as you, as you said there, for, for the vast majority of people, they walk to a dealer and they think, I'm buying this car from Ford. Ford have put this building here and put these cars on this, uh, this uh, show, um, and in the showroom for me to have a look at. So you see, you see it on social media that you know, when somebody has a problem, they, go, they don't go... You, typically, they don't go, dear dealer, you, I have this issue. They go, dear Ford, 
I have this mm-hmm. issue. I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly because usually they're not as polite as that, but because um, <laughs> people aren't on social media. But but that's the thing is people just the perception is, um, you know, it's not a di- the, these aren't independent companies who are selling these cars. It's Ford that's selling it, or it's whoever yeah. that's selling these cars. Um, so uh, with your um, advertising standards, was I presume because I I used to work in architecture. Uh, oh. And for a company that did um, do some designs uh, for a, uh, for a few um, car manufacturers for or for dealers and dealer groups, but for specific car manufacturers, and we were always given here's the guidelines, here's the criteria of what must be built, and these are the materials, the finishes, this is how the signage has to look, and all that sort of stuff. So I presume it was something similar in the. Uh, in the wording of communication, you know, it has to be in this style. Yeah. If you're going to use a header, it's like this and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was the look and feel of it, but also... Brand guides or um, yeah. something. Well, I can't, sorry, I, I can't remember Brand the Brand guidelines. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it was. And, and, and uh, we started out being quite prescriptive. I think we kind of loosened that up a bit when we realised that it was probably over the top. But, you know, we created the photography for dealers to use. So if you want to use a picture of Fiesta... Here is a kind of a front, you know, side on a rear three-quarter image of a Fiesta that, that is going to be consistent. Um, mm. Now, the slight problem with that is, especially in a territory, and bear in mind Ford, Ford has a lot of, excuse me, a lot of dealers here in the UK, and a number of them kind of cross cross each other's territories. And what dealers were saying was, well, the problem with that is, it's very difficult for me to differentiate my um, my advert from from another advert if you're going to be so prescriptive. So we did loosen things up a bit, gave them a little bit more flexibility to, to sort of, you know, put their own personality on it. But broadly speaking, what we wanted was for any customer, I think what you said earlier, I think is absolutely true. Customers don't differentiate between dealers and Ford, but they also don't differentiate between a piece of content from, from Ford. Mm. So whether it's a, an advert or if it's a video or a, an image or a uh, an, uh, an infographic, it doesn't really matter. They see it as content from Ford. Yeah. Um, and for many years, in fact, for the vast majority of the years, 114 years the company's been around, that content could, could differ wildly. Um, and, it, and it made no sense. It, it was just, it wasn't the right way of going about things. So this was just kind of the first, the first move and, and more of that's going on today now, actually, with the integration between marketing and communication. Well. Yeah, I mean that is a that is a topic that I've noticed more and more. The the heavier my interest is coming to the the motoring universe and sort of speaking to people like yourself is seeing how much um, marketing is actually tied in with the product side of things. And it's I see some companies on certain products getting the balance right, and other ones because I'm quite cynical and picky i don't think the balance is quite right and they're perhaps over egging certain information but it must be quite tricky um do you uh, when you've got a new product coming out how what are the teams that are involved sorry i'm I'm asking this question a bit early actually but but it's come up what are the teams that are involved to get it to market and how how soon do they get together to discuss it we could probably do this for the rest of the podcast. Too, so. um, yeah, it, it, it's complex, is the, is the truth. It, I mean, in simple terms, 
the people responsible for external communications should be limited to to just public affairs or, or PR and marketing. So ostensibly, those two groups take the lead on that. But clearly, what they communicate is is defined by the product, um, and that that we break down into a kind of a number of different areas. So clearly, design uh, is a big part of that. So they are a stakeholder in in everything that we do. Um, manufacturing, uh, because where we where we build it and how we build it is is of interest to a greater or lesser extent to both media and consumers. Um, product development, so PD as we call them, and obviously they're responsible ultimately for uh, the integrity of the vehicle itself. Um, you'd like you'd like them to feel on site, then, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and they'll be the ones who tell us, you know, they, they will have done a lot of the, the work in terms of the attributes of the car. And we have uh, a series of attribute standards that we hold ourselves accountable to within the company. So the way a, a Ford vehicle steers and drives and handles and rides um, is all defined by a set of standards, a set of metrics. Is that again like a brand guideline? You, said, you know, yes. We, we yeah, hear, I mean, I've, I've not... Um, I've not driven any of the new Ford vehicles. Uh, I've had I've had Fords in the past, um, but they, what you always see in the write-ups or a review online or whatever is that somebody said, "But it drives really well," and th- that's consistently sort of gone through time uh, over a long period of time. So, is, is that is that one of the key attributes that, that Ford is really keen to keep and doesn't? You know, is it, that 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 helps define us as a brand? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's critically important, and, and, and it's funny you should say it's always been the case that that you could argue that actually wasn't the case. Um, Sorry, I, I'm I'm going to caveat that. I'm going to say from the Focus Mark One. Ah, uh, well, uh, well, uh, that, in that case, you're you're spot on. I, I'd actually <laughs> kind of I go Mondeo Mark One, but but yes, uh, there was a guy who I think many of your listeners will probably uh, know the name, guy called Richard Perry Jones. Who is uh, rightly a, a kind of a legend in, within Ford and within the industry, and he was actually the uh, the chief engineer on the Mondeo, the new Mondeo when it came along, and and we up until that point had had a succession of, let's be honest, fairly average, average cars, um, and in some cases pretty poor actually, um, and and Richard Perry Jones took it upon himself to kind of rewrite the um, the rulebook in terms of the way our cars should ride and steer and handle, etc. Um, and really, yes, as you say, from Monday and Focus Smart One onwards, it's been an absolutely defining part of, of our brand DNA. Um, some would say we spend more time than actually the average customer would would recognise on the way that happens. I, I'd actually argue that even you know Mrs Jones from Cardiff driving to, to the shops in her Fiesta doesn't realise um, all of the attributes that go into making her car feel the way that it does. But I think absolutely does care that she enjoys driving it uh, and has a sense of, uh, a, a, a kind of belief and enjoyment that comes from, from owning it. So it does matter to us. We actually do do a lot of research. God forbid, I know it's a triple word research sometimes, but <laughs> we, uh, we have an ongoing uh, study called the Nielsen Report that, we, that looks into the way consumers buy and, uh, and, and kind of uh, use their vehicles. And in particular, the attributes that they really care about. Um, and there are six that are kind of particularly important, um, and some of them are pretty obvious. So. Uh, uh, sorry, just just a quick oh. question because I've not delved into this before, but I will do later because I, I do like a good 
uh, I do like to uh, investigate these things because <laughs> that's the sort of exciting guy I am. But um, are they? Are you? Just, is this uh, asking all types of consumers? Yeah, yeah. Just just picking random people, not a specific subset or anything like that. It's just people. No, it's everyone. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the only the only caveat is that you have to at least own a car. That's it. Uh, apart yeah, from that, okay. I, can, uh, I can see the sense of that. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's a there's there is that to it. But by and large, apart from that, we're not asking people who are car nuts or are, or not car nuts. We're just asking people in general. Um, and there are six things that kind of come out as as important. And, and by the way, Ford isn't necessarily strong at all of them. So I'll be I'll be you know, honest enough to to admit to that. So the first one is is uh, green. For want of a better word, so you can wrap a whole load of things into that. That's you know, environmental credentials, it's um, alternative powertrains, whatever it is. It's it's a from a consumer perspective, it is you know simply is that car going to deliver good fuel economy and and, and and deliver to my needs. So that's that's kind of one thing. The second one is is kind of slightly odd uh, is heritage. Um, uh, and what that means to consumers is, am I buying from a car, from a brand that I can trust and that has a history and, and therefore potentially a future? Um, so consumers consider that to be important. Which is why, sorry to just cut you off there, but which is why it, it seems so hard for a new brand to break into the, the market, whatever, whatever tier they're trying to pitch themselves at. There's there's a lot of lot of work has to go in, doesn't it, of convincing people? Yeah, their, their heritage can be a positive and a negative. You, you know, if, if you've got a, a rich a rich history, um, then obviously it's going to be probably a positive. But if you've done things to damage your brand in the past, then <laughs> <Lantia>. their heritage, <laughs> then heritage suddenly becomes kind of millstone around your neck. So oddly yeah. enough, it, it works both ways. Um, I, it doesn't suggest that a new brand, and, and you know, we're all thinking probably the same one in the form of Tesla, it doesn't mean that a new brand that doesn't have a rich heritage can't succeed. That's absolutely not the case. Well, no, I mean, if you know, mentioning that brand, they, they have, uh, for as much as I have uh, have criticised them, and I and I will continue to do so, um, and it's not, and I'm not asking you to do anything like that because that's not, that's very unfair. But um, for, for as much as I criticise them, they have got attention. From Absolutely. the world onto electrified vehicles, which from that point of view alone, I do applaud them. There are then many other things I do not. But from that, just on that one topic, they have done a fantastic job of raising awareness to people that electrified vehicles actually can be a viable medium of transport. Yeah, and they've caught the zeitgeist of the times as well. I mean, they, 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 they've got a very singular proposition. They absolutely uh, maximise it. They've got in Elon Musk, loving or hating, they've got a real, a real character who kind of doesn't pay by the rules, who doesn't pay by the conventions, and he's happy to fire a Tesla Roadster into the into space if, if that's going to give him, you know, headline coverage. And, and you know what? Fair play to him. And and all of us in the other brands probably are looking rather jealously at that, as that car kind of circulates the uh, the world and thinking, well, you know, that's slightly beyond my budget. Um, <laughs> I think there's a role. There's a role for new brands. There's a role for established brands. Um, I don't think it's right of of him to criticise us for being established, and it's certainly not right for us to criticise him for for being a new player in the marketplace. So we've we've all got a we've all got a role to play in this. If the industry 
around the world is big enough for all of us to be able to play in it. So uh, you know, I, I I don't I don't view him or, or, or companies like his as uh, as a bad thing. Quite the opposite. I think it's a great thing. It, it's Driving, driving innovation. Well, I think from the from the point of view that of, of that happening, it gives uh, us as the consumer more choice, and I and that is a good thing in my opinion. Uh, this has to be quantified on. It has to be good choice, and you know, realistic choice and safe choice, and all these other things that go into us deciding to spend our money on a particular car, but. Just taking that as read, it's giving the consumer more choice, uh, and that is fantastic because then it it raises more awareness to other people. You know, maybe the more established brands out there as well to people who weren't paying any attention at all because they're going, "Oh, a car! Oh, that's a car! All oh, right, and now I'm all oh, right. Okay, I see that billboard ad for whatever brand that is not an electrified one. Oh, okay, I, and now I'm I'm noticing these things more and more, and and that can only be. Uh, a, a good thing, um, and also if there's if there's new players in, they may think about things in a different way. I mean, Tesla clearly has with with PR and marketing and and the way they've approached things, um, and that may be something that uh, established brands can go. Ah, okay, fair enough. I can see how that works. Maybe we could take this element of that, not maybe the whole thing. And and you know, again, it, it, it's it's exciting and interesting looking from the outside it's probably not always fantastic being the other side <laughs> and so like, oh look at how's how's that how's that become a headline that's ridiculous <laughs> you know, yeah, whatever I mean, not just from tesla but from anybody but you know, it's yeah and i think that's you know that, that that can be frustrating at times but i think if you spend too much of your time uh you know trying to attack you know a brand like that and trying to focus your attention on that you're you're probably missing the bigger point um They've come in as a disruptor into into our industry, if you want to use it as, as our industry as a term. They've come in and they've disrupted that, and they've done it very effectively. Um, now, you know, you can argue about profitability, you can argue about sustainability, all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, they are a topic of conversation now, wherever you go. And, mm. and even non-car folk um, are interested in talking to me about Tesla and about that brand proposition. And, Personally, I think that's a good thing. I, I, I like the idea of a world where people talk about cars. Yeah. I really don't like the idea of a world where people don't. So, you know what? Bring, bring on, bring on the debate, um, bring on the discussion, bring on the competition. I think what they do is fantastic, and, and I've, I've absolutely every respect for that. Um, but, but nevertheless, we're not going to sit still and watch them, you know, each way at our our market share or whatever. We're, we're going to take action on that. Thing. Yeah. So, uh, I think the shareholders might get a bit miffed at that. <laughs> No, quite. And, you know, they, they, they want to broaden their business model. You know, they started off very, very niche. Um, they want to broaden that out. Obviously, you know, Model 3 takes them into a, into a new segment. You know, the recent announcements about pickup truck and, and, uh, and lorries, et cetera, you know, that takes them to another segment again. So clearly they're brought on their horizons and, and I'm sure they're expecting us to do the same thing. Yeah. Sorry, I've taken us right off topic. That was, uh, I think that was number three, that Heritage. Sorry. So three is an interesting one, actually, um, is safety. Okay. And, and actually, safety is an odd one. Um, consumers, they, they'll always tell you that safety really matters to them. They'll rate it very highly when you ask them about it. They will say that they wouldn't consider a brand that didn't have a, a good safety record, which is, you know, in, in the 
case of a car is perfectly understandable. The interesting thing, though, is actually when you ask consumers if they'd be prepared to pay for additional safety features, they suddenly um, their, their opinions change very rapidly. Um, and suddenly you get to another point, which is actually safety is kind of a hygiene factor. It, it's kind of expected these days. Mm. Um, and actually expecting people to pay more for it, you, you'd be surprised to find that they're not interested. Uh, but anyway, it's on our list of six, nevertheless. The, the next one is, is technology. And that's kind of pretty, again, pretty broad in, in a kind of a term. It can mean everything from technology that's useful to me. In other words, you know, if I'm Mrs. Jones driving to and from, you know, the shops, that could be just the, the, the advancement of an electronic choke. Um, right up to, you know, this is going to spend 60,000 miles a year on the car, uh, on the road who wants to voice activate every feature of the car, etc., and probably take his hands off the wheel and get in the back seat and read. Times newspaper. So <laughs> technology is a pretty, pretty broad, uh, a pretty broad uh, It's only getting worse for you. <laughs> it is, and I think I think what's interesting about it is is how broad it is. Tesla, Tesla is kind of a very single-minded company. They have a, a single proposition around electrified vehicles, and and within that, uh, clearly they're pushing autonomous vehicles or levels of autonomy within their cars. What, what, other, what a number of the established OEMs uh, have as a problem is well, we have to invest not only in those those kind of future um, uh, uh, powertrains and those future technologies, but also to continue investing in existing ones. Um, so clearly, you know, petrol and diesel are, are hugely important to us and to our consumers. We have to invest in all those hybrids, uh, plug-in hybrids, uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, as well as the broader uh, infrastructure. So it's a much broader proposition for many of the OEMs, um, which gives us probably a greater challenge in the likes of Tesla to be very, very single-minded. Now, that may change in time as Tesla broaden out their, their horizons, um, but for the time being at least, we're kind of in this, this kind of difficult position where we have to invest in every area, uh, including some that may or may not end up becoming you know, particularly successful, but we have to invest in them nevertheless. And we're talking nowadays about you know, huge, huge amounts of money. Um, that we're having to invest, and, and clearly you've got to, unlike you know, some of our competitors who are blessed by able to make kind of significant losses every uh, every year and still stay in business, that's that's not a business model that Ford adheres to. So we've got to carry on making money whilst also investing in a lot of areas that actually aren't going to deliver a return for, for a number of years hence, unfortunately. Well, I mean, there's things, uh, you know, this isn't exactly connected to that, but um, it is sort of into when you talk about investment, but it's, it's like all the mobility stuff that seems a little bit Wild Westy when you look from the outside in. Because, <laughs> um, you, you, you know, it's almost every week somebody's invested in some mobility type company, whether that's, you know, an Uber type thing or whether it's I don't know you know car sharing or stuff like that but there's there seems to be almost weekly somebody's investing eye-watering amounts of money in these companies (laughs) and as you say yeah you've still got to come out with whatever the next generation Fiesta is Yep. That you you know it must be in the pipeline now because you've just brought out one, you know yep. as well as as well as looking at um, electrification because that has to happen otherwise you can't continue to make cars that can be sold in Europe and the UK because of legislation and yep. as well as around the world and then you've got you know everything all those we were talking about the companies so broad in everything that has to happen well I mean there's then 
there is looking out from the company on all the things that have to be ticked off before anything can happen. And as you say there, which I, I didn't realise, um, but you know, still need to make money. You know, it's not like okay, we'll go five years making a loss because we've built a load up. No, it's when we still need to make money, please. <laughs> no yeah, pressure, we, everyone. We announced uh, you know, a few weeks ago we were going to invest. We we're going to invest eleven billion dollars over the next uh, five years in electrified vehicles. Now, I mean, it's very simple to say that, and if you just stop for a second and just kind of think, writing down the number eleven billion, just just kind of take a moment to think how many zeros that is. That that is a huge, huge, huge amount of money. And that eleven billion dollars, it's not like it's not like kind of we can borrow it from from your next door neighbour at zero percent interest. I mean, that is that is real money that we have to make in order to invest. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you know that's just electrified vehicles, by the way. So then you know take into account everything else that we're investing in as well at the same time. You know, think think of a basic platform uh, for a vehicle, something like a Focus or a Fiesta. You know, you're you're talking you know fairly sizable amounts of money to invest in those, uh, to bring those to market. So all of those investments demand you know, our ability to kind of be able to turn a profit. All the business goes goes down downhill very, very fast indeed, as you know, as a couple of, a couple of our competitors found back in two thousand and eight, you can you can find yourself going out of business in no time at all if you're not careful. So um, mm. yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge uh, effort that has to go in to um, kind of keep that machine rolling. Uh, and keep making those investments. And as I say, not all of them are going to deliver. Um, as you rightly pointed out, some of those, you know, some of those new technologies, you know, especially around um, uh, autonomous vehicles, you know, some of those new technologies are very in their very early stages. Some of them will deliver. Some of them won't. Uh, and some of them, you know, will be very expensive mistakes. But you can't you can't know until you try. So, yeah, um, it's yeah. the we don't know what we don't know stage. I think with a, with a lot of this technology. Um, you know, I've been very vocal in my scepticism, as you've probably noticed, uh, <laughs> if you haven't muted me too often, uh, <laughs> scepticism with my, uh, with getting to the, just for the sake of argument, because that's all we've got, but the levels three, four and five, um, yeah. how that's going to happen. And it's, you know, and I'm, I'm very skeptical on some of the timeframes we're being given by government and some of the more enthusiastic uh, elements of the industry and people who are new to the industry. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we are at a stage where people are going to get so far down the line. Uh, and as you say, some of this stuff, they're just going to go, we can't make it work. We've poured billions into this and we just can't make it work in a safe enough manner to allow it on the road. So, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what have we done with our time type thing yeah. but but at least that's that that cuts off an avenue and it's it's almost the um the edison quote um you know the i failed however many times to get to the point where it worked uh, and i think it unfortunately yeah. the the money involved is obviously so much more so much huger than that of you know someone trying to get an element to work and light up, but it's that principle. But it's just the money involved is scary at times, um, and, and I'm glad I have nothing to do with making the decision of saying yes. We'll 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 try this for four or five years because that's how long it needs. You know, so that's going to cost millions, maybe billions, to get to that point. And oh, 
It is. Uh, I, I'm very glad that I'm sitting on the sideline poking fun rather than having to make any hard decisions. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes we try. I was. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's it's always an interesting debate. I mean, clearly, you know, if you work at Ford, you care about cars. I mean, you, you, you're in the wrong place if you don't. And and all of us are kind of passionate gearheads, um, or, or certainly the vast majority of us are. Uh, and it's always difficult when somebody approaches and says, "Well, you know, why don't you do a?" I'm going to make this up now before I start any kind of uh, uh, kind of major uh, scandal starting. But, you know, what, what I've really wanted is, in my life is a Cougar with a, a V8 EcoBoost engine in it because I just think that would be brilliant. Well, the truth is, I think it probably would be good fun as well. But in the great scheme of things, you have to ask yourself: is that is that what consumers in in, in a, a big enough number both want and need for us to kind of justify that? It is a difficult equation. You know, clearly electrified vehicles are absolutely going to be necessary going forward. We, we all of us agree um, that, that, that the impact that the regular ICE engine is having on the environment is, is not a positive one. You can argue about what level of positivity there is there. And, you know, I, I don't think it's quite necessarily as a doom and gloom as, as other people do, but certainly it's having an impact regardless. And we need to find a solution to that. Mm. Selling more cars. It was a very peculiar moment, I think, when Bill Ford stood up a couple of years ago and said, you know, I'm here to tell you that I'm not, I'm not in the market of trying to sell more cars and trucks. I'm actually trying to sell fewer cars and trucks because actually if we carry on building and selling cars and trucks at the rate we are doing, the gridlock levels, you know, which we already experience in most of the major cities around the world, are going to become such that actually you're never even going to be able to enjoy the product that you have and it's just not going to meet its basic fundamental need, which is to transport you know, people and goods from one place to another. So clearly there has to be, uh, you know, some, some clever thinking going on about what the future is going to look like. And a lot of that work's going on at Ford. It's going on at, at you know, a lot of the other OEMs as well. The key thing for us is in the midst of all of this, we do actually have to carry on making the profit and making, you know, cars and trucks profitable so that we can fund, you know, that future investment. Um, and that's, you know, sometimes unpalatable, but, but it is a harsh economic reality of any business, regardless of, you know, big or small, um, you've got to you've got to speculate to accumulate. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, there isn't a magic purpose. money tree at the end of the Ford Garden, so you know, they're, they're, how are you supposed to how are you supposed to do it otherwise? And it it is yeah, it is almost um, rock and a hard place. Uh, and I'll think of other cliches if I can in a minute. No, I'm, I'm very happy to use them, but but it is uh, it it is a tricky. Tricky line to walk. Yeah, and you also have to you have to take decisions on behalf of consumers that they themselves probably as yet don't understand. Well, but that's um, a famous Ford. <laughs> if we go back to well, the origins. If I asked him what he wanted, he was asking for a faster horse. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, very true. I mean, Henry Ford Henry Ford was brilliant that stuff, and he's quite right. Um, you know, we we have to look at we have to look at this thing in its entirety. Um, you know. Simple examples, you know, take the Fiesta ST, you know, the forthcoming Fiesta ST. It's, we, we could have banged in, you know, a massive powertrain, you know, you know two litre caboose or one six litre caboose or whatever, um, and, and probably delivered, you know, phenomenal horsepower. But actually, you know, downsizing and, and fuel efficiency is, is important even within that segment. Um, so we, you know, we've gone to a three cylinder engine, which actually an engine that, that will um, will run on two cylinders for for all the time if it's if it's not on the load. Um, it's it's hopefully what we consider to be a clever solution 
but we'll still deliver, I mean, still 200 horsepower, so it's not exactly the end of the world. Um, <laughs> yes. 200 horsepower 20 years ago, something uh, that size would have been an interesting proposition. Um, <laughs> so it's still, you know, I'm still going to deliver on its fun to drive, but we've also got to do it in the context of, you know, changing environments out there, and uh, uh, and we need to kind of come up with clever solutions, and you know, that's that's one of them, and, and there are many more besides that coming from well, I mean, but that is the that is the positive to take out of the the changes in legislation and the constraints that are being put on, whether it's economics or uh, legislation or or just general society changes and and mood swings of society, is that it forces uh, OEMs to have to think cleverly, and. I, I don't think it allows you to. No, this is you as in the industry, by the way, not you personally. Um, it allows uh, allows people to sit and just rest on laurels anymore. I mean, you could Absolutely. say that there were there were some cars and some stuff that was given to the mass market in the, the mid nineties towards the two thousands, which were pretty poor from yeah. a. Almost in a lazy, produced way of, well, they'll take anything almost. I don't, I'm not naming names here or anything like that, but it just, there are there are certain cars out there. But that, that's happened throughout time. That's not, I'm not being specific, but I particularly remember that period. Um, and you just got to go, come on, that's not acceptable. That's not, yeah. that's not right. Uh, and and I, I'm probably looking for some... Uh, utopia that doesn't exist, <laughs> where we're all we're all cherished and loved and all the rest of it. But you sort of think, but you know, come on, that that was a level of cynicism from yeah. from manufacturers that was misjudged. I think I'll be polite in putting, and it came back to bite them. But now I look at you know how cars have changed, and there's there's not often we are given a technically bad car. These days. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, I think I think it is to the greater benefit of the entire industry and more importantly to the customer you know, that that you know the number of really proper, true thinkers that are on the road these days is is very very few and far between, and which makes the odd mistake when they do kind of wrong or more obvious, I guess. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy on behalf of Ford to kind of take our you know our share of of, uh, of kind of role in that. I mean, you know, the last. The last generation escort, I think we could all probably state, was, was not, you know, our finest hour. Mm. Um, and Richard Perry Jones, you know, held that car up as the shining example of what Ford is not going to do anymore, is not do cars like that. Um, and you know, there's been you know, clearly there's been the odd miss along the way, and you know, that, that's sometimes to be uh, expected. But as I said, it, it's a it's a rare day these days when you get in behind the wheel of a of a modern car and actually go, you know what, this is a proper stinker. Um, yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't happen very much anymore. No, um, there, there may be a, a couple of quirks and everything, but it, for it to be bad is Yeah, and there's cars you rare. might not like. You might yeah. not like the look of them or you might not like the driving dynamics or the feel of them, but the chances are they they exist to serve a particular niche or a particular audience. Um, just because, you know, if I don't like them because I like driving fast cars very fast around the corner, you know, uh, that, that that means that not every car on the road is going to appeal to me, but but I have to respect that they are fundamentally good cars, safe cars, generally speaking, fuel efficient cars, um, and you know I think I think the world has advanced a great deal as a result of that. Yeah, and and generally they work when you turn the key, which you know thirty forty years ago was not a thing that happened. 
as yeah, often as one ground, would hope. It's nothing like as common to see cars stand at the side of the road unless potentially it's because they don't have a spare wheel, but, um, mm. which, is, which is an ongoing issue. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's, let's not uh, raise that hobby horse of people. But no, it is, it is a rare thing that uh, you know, cars have to be down. I, I, I genuinely, I'm not saying this because I work for Ford, I, I can't think of a time that my car has not you know, failed to start you know, on the key first time. So, you know, happy days. I think that's a good thing for the consumer, surely. Yeah. Right, I think we've got as far as technology, and I've taken us on about five different tangents yeah, since worry. then. Sorry. If there's only two more, you'd be better. Uh, one is quality, um, which is kind of pretty obvious, really. Um, you know, and we've just been touching on it. You know, people want to know they turn it on to work. It is obvious, but... It isn't easy. No. What is... It's not an easy one to quantify. No, not at all. Um, because quality can be defined by a whole bunch of things. You know, how... How the steering wheel feels when you put your hands on it. How does the the door? We spend a huge amount of time on the ergonomics of our door handles. It's the first thing you touch on a car, right? Mm. So, so how does that feel? How does it? What kind of does that translate? How do the doors shut? Um, you know, when you open the boot, does does the does uh, and it's been raining? Does it cover you in water? You know, there's there's a there's enormous different ways to kind of define quality, um, and we have a you know, as you would imagine a, an enormous number of metrics by which we define it. Um, and but but ultimately it comes down to does the consumer have a sense of confidence that the product that they're buying is gonna is gonna last is gonna wear well and is, is not gonna let them down at the side of the road is what it basically comes down to. Yeah. Okay. And then the last one, which is kind of kind of comes full circuit to where we started, is actually fun to drive, which is interesting because what we're saying there is that consumers who might otherwise have little or no knowledge of of cars or or indeed care even less. Still, actually, think that a car being fun to drive is important, um, which that, actually also uh, I am I am gobsmacked at that. I, I must be honest. I thought it was yeah, just I, I, just us nerds in this corner of the internet. No, but again, I think we need to define what fun to drive is. Fun, fun to drive for us is probably different to the way they're defining fun to drive. Um, they might define fun to drive as you know the gear shift is easy. It's simple for me to go from second to third. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. Getting the car into reverse is easy. It's it easy is not park. it is not difficult to drive this car. It, it does not make the journey a hassle. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's if it's worth at, at the worst level we want customers to get into our car and not have to worry or think about the act of driving it, if if that's really all they care about. Mm. As it's best, we want them to do is throw it into a corner and, and come out the other side thinking, A with a grin on their face and B thinking Crikey, you know, I didn't know it could do that. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it whether it be you know a, a, a Ford GT or a, or a you know one liter EcoBoost Fiesta, it doesn't really matter. What matters to us is that they they come out of it with a with you know with a with a grin on their face. So I, I think fun to drive is saying. I think it's I, when I first saw that I got terribly excited to write that because driving dynamics is going to be absolutely all I talk about <laughs> for the rest of my career. It's not that unfortunately, but it, but it does show that people actually care about the act of driving more than probably we think they do. Where did you move next in in the uh, envelope of Ford? Well, I benefited from the fact that we still owned Jaguar Land Rover at the time, so okay. I actually went to Jaguar. Um, All right. I spent five years. I spent five years there. I started in, in marketing. Uh, I was actually the communications manager for the um, much maligned X Type. If you can remember back to that. Yes. Uh, we have quite a few of those still knocking around. Oh, well, they should go on forever. Mm. It wasn't what they are. 
Um, actually, it's very interesting to on that, especially how how that came to be uh, kind of mismanaged so badly by Jaguar. Um, and I hold myself as partly responsible for that, by the way. Um, was that actually when when media brought that up, the fact that it was just a Mondeo underneath, it was you know, Jaguar were very apologetic about it and, and kind of you know, didn't really want to talk about it. It could have been so different if they just said, yeah, well, you know, it is based on the multi-award winning Mondeo chassis that we've enhanced and improved even further. It kind of, the problem might have gone away, but anyway, it didn't, um, and we didn't, and, uh, and unfortunately X-Type uh, died a death, although not before selling you know, an awful lot of vehicles around the world and actually introducing a lot of people to the Jaguar brand. But, yeah. Well, if you, if you hadn't had the X-Type, then we wouldn't have the uh, XF or the XE, I don't think. Probably. Um, I mean, you know, the other problem that Jaguar had was, you know, on day one, uh, the then CEO, a guy called Jonathan Browning, famously stood up and said, you know, I, I expect to sell 200,000 of these a year. Um, and it's, it's actually a, a lesson I kind of uh, tell anybody coming into PR who comes to work with me. Um, media journalists get very frustrated when you won't tell them how many you intend to sell of something. But, but it's actually a very dangerous thing to do. Um, and the example I use is if, if Jaguar had sold 199,000 X-Types in one year, it would have been an absolutely roaring success. I mean, it would have been off the charts successful. And yet they would have missed their 200,000 objectives. It could have been held up as being a failure. Yeah. Um, so actually, you, you need to kind of set your expectations, either set them low and, and exceed them, or don't tell people what expectations are. Um, mm. And, and Jaguar, I think, kind of, you know, they, 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 the X-Type was held up as this tremendous failure for Jaguar. It actually wasn't. It really wasn't. Um, and people might find it odd in saying that, but it did bring a huge number of consumers, hundreds of thousands of consumers into the Jaguar brand that would otherwise not have done so. A, a large number of which, of whom stayed in the brand, you know, went on to buy, as you say, XFs or, or XJs or, or whatever. Um, and, and actually as such as, you know, was, was considered, you know, a great success. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, was it the greatest car Jag have ever produced? Well, clearly not, and their, you know, their current crop of cars is, is exceptional. So, you know, clearly they might look back on it as, as being uh, you know, a failure as well, but actually, oddly enough, it wasn't. But anyway, you know, I, I'm, I'm oddly protective about it. But I think it's what you said before on the other, when we were talking about technology, you, you have to... Um, it's not quite speculate to accumulate here, but you've got, you've got to take those steps... There's, it's very easy to look at things in isolation, and you know I'm as guilty as anyone of doing it, and I'm very happy to do it because it's you know it's easy. Uh, there's no pressure of doing it, but if you can, if you have the opportunity to look back at things, and you've got hindsight, you can you can see the steps and the progress, and, and you know, and if there was a misstep, I'm not saying that the uh, this was a misstep because you know it sold so well. Just not what was announced. <laughs> it was just going to be sold, um, so it allowed other steps to be taken. And it, 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 it's a bit similar to um, when I see a, a, a sports car manufacturer, and we've seen it all in many recent years. Says we're going to bring out an SUV, and you get the understandable emotional reaction from people who aren't buying in the brand anyway, saying. That just ruins the brand. It's a waste of time. Oh my God, more SUVs, blah, blah, blah. However, 
they have to sell all these SUVs to be able to make the really exciting sports cars. <laughs> you know, you know, we can't do one without the other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the Porsche Cayenne bankrolled the 911. I mean, yeah, you know, that's the, the facts of matter, and, and and it's been a knockout success for them. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not a believer that that a brand, a car brand, can't stretch itself anyway. Uh, you know, do I personally like the idea of a Ferrari SUV? Oh, no, not particularly. Growing up with a deep love for Ferrari and everything they do, and an SUV doesn't fit my thoughts of that brand. But you know what? I absolutely respect the decision to do it. But then again, doesn't it does selling tens of thousands of T-shirts with Ferrari on it? That's absolutely. not Ferrari either. But that's how no. you know that's part of the company to make it money to to be able to you know make the exciting and you know just nerve janglingly fantastic vehicles that make the howling noises yeah you know, it's got to happen somehow because you know as you said before about ford there you know there isn't a magic money tree at the end of the garden that people can go and kick it occasionally and then say let's go and do another one i mean every bentley bentley argo or rolls royce cullinan or, or uh, porsche Cayenne or whatever those brands are able to deliver exceptional race cars you know that live alongside those that continue to to build the brand even further and build, build the, mystique, the mystique of it. And yeah. I'm absolutely a great believer in it. You know what, whatever it, within reason, more or less, whatever it takes to fund you know, that dream and to continue moving that brand forward, I think is absolutely the right thing for it to do. As long as, long as they are continuing to capture part of the essence of the brand. Like, absolutely. Uh, you know, the Bentayga, I, I've not been in one, um, but watching it's, it's, uh, the Grand Tour, it seems very Bentley and opulent inside. Absolutely. So therefore, for the vast majority of the time that you are in, that you have one of those, you have a Bentley, and that's what matters. Yeah. And that is Absolutely. the key thing there. Totally agree with you. Uh, I mean, it's the same for the Porsche Cayenne. You know, you get in that, and you realise that you're sitting high, but you feel like all of the Porsche DNA that you love from a from a Cayman or a, a 911 is absolutely there and present when you drive a Cayenne or indeed a Macan. I mean, the they're exceptional cars, and I think Porsche. I think probably beyond anyone else, actually, have got it absolutely right in terms of revisiting or bringing that brand DNA to bear on whatever product they they, they bring out. Um, I think they're a kind of a, they're a kind of a, a rule to the rest of us really as to how to do it, and, um, and 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 you know all power to them. Yeah. So, how long were you at Jag then, Jag Landro? Uh Five years, and that, that's when I transitioned. So I moved out of marketing, moved to public affairs. So. I, uh, I moved into a job called Global Product Launch, which sounds extremely grand. Um, but basically, <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a theme here, right, that pay. you don't see much of your own bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my, uh, my daughter arrived around that time. Oh, and, uh, no. Yeah, uh, my wife, after a while, eventually said, look, I think that's probably enough of uh, this gallivanting around the world. And uh, time's kind of uh, yeah, find something more reasonable. So I, I then went, uh, actually, to the BAG, just before it was about to kind of go, and, and oddly having been at Jaguar, I then went to to London to go and be responsible or kind of part of the team that uh, helped sell you know, Jaguar Land Rover to Tata uh, Motors. So that was a, a peculiar, a peculiar thing to have to do. Um, and you know, it's funny. It's, Jaguar is one of those brands that, that really gets under your skin. I think if you're a car person in any shape or form, there's something about that brand that is that's really magical. Um, and, and I have to say, it was very difficult to kind of leave leave that team. I, I love those guys and love that, those products very greatly. It actually afforded me one of my 
my most life endearing moments. You know, when the, when the time comes and, and the great car man in the sky calls me to uh, uh, to the garage, so to speak, I will I uh, will forever remember the fact that I got to drive a, a long nosed Jaguar D type uh, on the public roads. And um, once you've heard that engine. You, you kind of you'll never look back. It's Come on, you, you can go off people, you know. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, no, but fair enough. Is... I mean, fair enough. I'd be very yeah, happy with that as well. <laughs> but there is something so magical about that brand, and, you know, all of the you know the iconography of it. You know, you think of the Steve McQueen picture in the XKSS, and you, know, you, you think about the the stories about uh, Norman Jewis in the XK13. Uh, just an astonishing brand, and you know, driving the Jaguar E Type at 150. By the way, whoever did that was braver than I was because above above 100 miles an hour that thing got fairly entertaining anyway (laughs) but no I mean astonishing stories uh, you know 120 I mean it's just it's a brand that you'll that that, that gets under your skin so I think you know Ford had I'd say that's one it's one of the few that have uh, transcended the the British public's psyche it's Everybody knows about Jag. Everybody's yeah. a little bit fond of them. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, E-Type is, you know, has consistently been voted the most beautiful car of all time, and, and frankly, I can't see anyone would you know, even disagree with that. As, as many beautiful Ferraris exist out there as they do, as they do, that E-Type, I mean, what a what a sight that thing is! Mm-hmm. It stops traffic today. You know, people drive past. And everyone stops to stare and, and look at it. It's the most gorgeous shape in, in, in all of history, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, I mean, how how the <laughs> the Grand Tour did it this series? I don't know if you've seen it at all. But, uh-huh. they, they, but the way they dealt with the, the older Jags was it was a celebration of them. Um, it was, and it was yeah. it was very entertaining. Their highs and their lows. Yes. <laughs> To be honest, Jaguar, Jaguar historical Jaguar ownership does come with a certain uh, certain degree of peril. Yes, and bank, you know, bank managers weep. <laughs> um, no, but it, 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 yes, it is a story a story brand, and, and again, it's funny we were just talking about it, weren't we? About you know expanding and broadening the brand, and, you know, purists kind of up in arms at the thought of, a, of an F pace and uh, an I pace and E pace, etc. But they're absolutely the right thing for the brand, and, and they're going to hopefully turn that brand into a profitable one. Um, and I think rightly so. And I think you know Ian Callum is is absolutely. I've been very. Yeah, you talked about me, you know, being very lucky to drive a D type. But there's there's one other thing I've been very lucky about. I had two kind of big automotive heroes, um, you know, growing up and through my career, which was which were Richard Perry Jones and Ian Callum. And at, at, at various points in my career, I've had the good fortune to. To look after both of them from a PR perspective, um, and to spend time with them is just an absolute privilege. I mean, they are both of them kind of both true gentlemen, um, but also insanely talented and real kind of visionaries in their field. And I was I was very fortunate to spend time with both of them. And I think I think what Ian does at Jaguar is fantastic, and uh, you know, all power to him. And I'm, I'm glad the F Pace has been the success it has been because they deserve that, and they deserve hopefully be able to use. That to kind of continue to invest in some of the other exciting products that they've got coming along. So, so um, you've you've helped sell off Jaguar and Land Rover. There's to be a low point. Anyway. Um, then, <laughs> there was yeah, an then eBay then, auction or something like that that you were. Yes, just a smidgen. Yeah, then then it was off to America. But so, sorry, uh, sorry, just a just a quick question oh. on that. But considering um, how. 
well they seem to be doing, that mm. group. Do you feel uh, a sense of satisfaction then in what you did in, in, in enabling that to happen, enabling them to, to be bought by Tata? Um, yeah, I mean, it makes it sound like I did it on my own. No, 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 <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to yeah. say, but to be involved no, in that process and then see the, the, the fact that it, you know, it was in danger... And now it seems to be thriving. Okay, it still needs. It's a work in progress and everything like that. But it seems to be thriving. It seems to be moving quite quickly in the right direction. Absolutely. That that must you know because it's it's obviously Jaguar obviously meant a lot to you. And that that's very clear. So that must must be pleasing. Yeah, it is honestly. Um, I think what was interesting was you know there were a number of there were a number of suitors for the business back then. Uh, uh, and you know they they ranged from you know some some fairly kind of sizable sizable outfits and some pretty professional outfits to some pretty you know not not so not so great shall I say I, I think it could never probably I guess the, the book will be written one day about the process that we went through Ford actually took its responsibility for selling those those two brands extremely seriously um, we did a lot of due diligence we spent a lot of time. With, with all of the various suitors that were coming in our way, we could probably have sold the brands for more money, is the reality, to, to other suitors. But I think all of us felt, uh, or everyone that was involved, felt that Tata had a real vision for that, for those brands. Um, they weren't looking to them to kind of make a, sh- a quick buck, uh, make a couple of quid, and then sort of sell them off again to somebody else. They were in it for the long haul. They made that very clear. They were prepared to invest you know, up front in the brands, which was needed. I mean, you know, Range Rover, the new Range Rover was, was, was kind of coming very shortly and, and was going to require a significant investment. Mm. Um, and Tata were, were happy to kind of put their hands in the pockets and do that. Because the worry like, is it would be another Rover. Yeah, it could well have been, actually. I mean, because, you know, in our country, they, you know, that's what we, you know, that's the, it's almost the poster child for how not to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Ford take it, took its responsibility very seriously. I think, you know, I, I totally understand that, that people will look at that from an external perspective and say, you know, there's a big mass market American brand, you know, trying to run these kind of small niche, you know, UK brands that don't understand the customer, they don't understand the product. I, I, I think that's somewhat unfair. I think Ford brought a lot to, to Jagged Land Rover. You know, we inherited some some interesting problems, so I say it's probably not the first brand to us, but anyway. <laughs> We, we inherited some interesting issues, and, and you know, by and large, um, we put in place the processes that enabled those brands to grow. Tata, I think, have taken it to a new level. Um, they've done it very cleverly. I think they've, they've given them a level of autonomy where where needed. Understanding that I think they know their biz- their business better than than anyone, but they've also been there to kind of bring support and, and financial aid and and ensure that the investments that were being made were the right ones. And, I think actually it's a huge success story in terms of how to take on you know two storage brands like that and, and make them work. And I think you know it's to Tata's eternal uh, eternal credit that they've done such a good job. And they clearly are in for it, you know, in, in for, the, for the long haul on that as well. They're not going to jump out and try and sell them. So uh, good, good on them. And yes, but yes, it was hard. I have to say to, to sort of say goodbye to that. But there's a real family atmosphere up at uh, up in Coventry and uh, Brands Day and at Liam and Gabe and Anita. Yeah, I was I was sad to say goodbye to it. Okay, so where did you move to? Uh, sorry, next because I cut you off on this. Uh, before. Time to salute the flag. Uh, so <laughs> Stand to attention. <laughs> Dearborn, America, 
Yeah, I had to, I had to get my head shaved and have the uh, have the blue oval imprinted on the back of my, uh, back of my head. Um, <laughs> in park. Yeah, no, I went to look after. Uh, yes, I went to look after SUV and CUV communication because they're not so. Uh, think of vehicles like uh, Escape or Cougar as we know it here in Europe, and mm-hmm. um, I also looked after Lincoln products, so, uh, so MKX as it was, uh, the Ford Flex, which sadly you don't get over here, wonderful, wonderful bit of kit, uh, and then latterly the, uh, the, the all new Ford Explorer, which uh, was my kind of last, my parting gift before I came back to Europe, so uh, yeah, it was great. I, I, I don't think you, you can fully understand Ford until you've lived there. Uh, and, and kind of seeing how the, the business works up, up close and personal. Um, I also happened to be there when, the, you know, the car industry was collapsing all over the place back in 2008, you know, post Lehman Brothers. Um, yeah. And again, you know... That must have been of, quite scary time. I mean, I, I got I got affected by all that uh, because the architecture firm, like I said, we, we the, 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 the architecture firm that I was with at the time, a massive proportion of their business was... Uh, designing and building showrooms mm. so we were in the car industry and the building industry when it all went wrong not a good mix <laughs> if you wanted wanted to be employed or actually have a business that was viable <laughs> yeah and it's i mean i think you know there's a fantastic book actually by a journalist called uh, bryce hoffman um who, who kind of followed the, the progress of the company through that period it was, it was predominantly around uh, about our um but I think it really gets across just how precarious it was. I mean, we were we were having daily meetings uh, to assess the viability of the business. Um, it, it got as serious as that. So literally, a meeting wow. every morning saying, "Have we got enough money to keep this business running for another twenty-four hours?" The pressure because, must have that must have oh, been sense. just oh, be so so immense. Um, but I think I think forgetting you know, put that aside for a second. I think what a lot of people. Again, we talked about you know looking at the number of a billion dollars and actually writing it down. It's the same thing when you talk about people's jobs. You know, we lost a number of a large number of people in the U.S. You know, both from our manufacturing facilities and from their head office. And again, you can write that number down and, and say, well, that looks terrible. But actually, when you see somebody walk past your office with with a, a cardboard box in their hand with all their possessions in the box, being accompanied out by security, uh, you know, in tears, then it really it takes on a whole new kind of level. Yeah. And, and as I said before, Ford is a family company, and we had to watch you know, a large number of our family members being, you know, escorted off the premises. Um, and it was it was brutal. Um, and I think you'd be well advised to never forget that. Whatever you do in the industry, whenever the good times come, is you know, don't forget. You know, a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices, and, and you know, some of them were were were, were pretty tough to watch. And, and I think that was. It was a humbling experience, I think, for everyone. But also, I mean, to be part of now, looking back on, you know, I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget the lessons that, that I learned from some of those great leaders. Alan and Ali was, was an astonishing you know, man to work with. Um, and I was very lucky to kind of, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, up close and personal with him. And, and he was every bit as astonishing individually as he was, you know, in, in, in a big group. And, well, he's still, he's still thought of fondly in the press. So that, Shows uh, a mark of how good he really must have been because the yeah. press is quite happy to turn, <laughs> as we all oh, know. Oh yeah, no, no, he, was, he was great. He, he was he was very honest. He was very frank. He he admitted that he wasn't a car guy. He, he was an aeroplane guy. Um, but he was also disarmingly 
disarming kind of brilliant with, with it as well. I mean, he was a fiercely intelligent guy. I think people kind of slightly overlooked that. He, he, there were no flies on Alan Alley, or there are no flies on Jesus. around. Yeah, wonderful. A wonderful guy to work with, and I think you know, all of us have learned a lot from him. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, that, so I did my three years there, and then uh, actually went straight from there to Germany, uh, to Cologne, to work in Europe's uh, in the headquarters of Europe, uh, where I was looking after actually kind of broadening our story out beyond the automotive media. I think we, very a while back now, I think we suggested we were going to cover that off, actually. But, um, and that's really what that was about was taking very complex engineering and manufacturing uh, stories and translating them into stories that real people in the verse commas can understand which was difficult for me because i'm a petrol head so i kind of you know <laughs> I, do love, I do love a bit of data um but actually you know spreadsheets are good spreadsheets are good so is a chart <laughs> um all right but Mrs. Jones from Cardiff Peaklin's hands for shots in her fiesta doesn't doesn't get any of that. And, no. <laughs> the, the example I always use is, you know, I can I can tell Mrs. Jones that her car is now uh, delivering kind of 98 grams of CO2 emissions uh, and it's delivering 4.9 uh, liters per hundred kilometers, and she'll look at me like I'm barking now. <laughs> yeah, no, it just costs you a lot less. <laughs> Well, exactly, and I can translate that story into actually, you know, Mrs. Jones, it'll cost you 250 quid less in, pe- in petrol every year. And then she understands the story. Yeah. Um, so a lot of what we were trying to do was broaden, broaden our storytelling and, and the way we tell stories on behalf of the company. And it was a, it was a very exciting time, actually. So, uh, and then from there into the job I'm in now, actually. So, uh, so that's kind of, that's the full journey around. Yeah, but you, you, you just blithely say, oh, the job I'm in now. But yeah, let's be fair, in the that's last... Good little while you have had a fairly important car to bring to market yeah, to help it? bring to market sorry again i'm not implying that you were the only one there with the spanners and everything <laughs> yes yeah no i've been i've been i've been very very lucky i, I you know i came in you know not long after i started this job i i got the, ne- the you know the next generation focus rs to, to launch and, you know there's not many more fun cars to get through than that um and then, not long after that, the Mustang. Well, that's bringing Mustang to Europe after 50 years. That's that's a pretty cool thing to do. And right-hand um, drive. And right-hand drive, thank you. <laughs> um, and We've then, got you know, three in our town. We've got three in our town. Two of them have got the five-litre. And uh, it's it, it's wonderful to uh, listen them listen to them go past. Yeah, they are. Um, there's nothing quite like it. I mean, for, for all that I care deeply about the environment and, and whatever, you know, listen to a V8, a, a five litre a V8 fire up is, is pretty good. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, I was very lucky with that. And then and obviously, you know, the, the, the new Fiesta and then, of course, GT, um, uh, which, uh, which is actually pretty, as a real once in a lifetime opportunity. We've only done three in, in all of the time the company's existed. So to get to launch, you know, one of them was, uh, was pretty astonishing. Um, How much pressure was there within the company uh, this is something I, I was I was wondering um, because it is such an iconic name mm. and has such a whew, fabled. I think it's probably underplaying it, but it's a fantastic story back in the day to to bring it back. How much pressure was there within the company of right, everyone? We do need to get this right. There, you know, we. This is something. Forget everything else. This is something we don't mess up. 
What's uh, there's a film that uh, it's just one of the James Bond films where uh, I think Renault Fine says to James Bond, "Said for God's sake, Bond, just don't cough it up." Um, <laughs> and it was uh, it was a little bit like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, but but I, did you get to a certain point in the in in the whole project where you're going, "Oh God, please be good, please be good, please be good," and then you got more access to the vehicle, you got to try it out, you got to to see what was being done that you thought. Actually, I think we're going to be okay. Because let's be fair, you, you, the reviews on it have been quite positive. The, the the stuff that people have said has is. I don't think there's been much negativity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably you're, you're probably doing a pretty bad job if you kind of take a car like that and screw it up. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think as, I mean, the interesting part of that story is it very very nearly didn't exist. So, so the full background to it is, uh, it, it originally started something called Project Silver, and Project Silver was was our intention to return to Le Mans after after nineteen sixty six, so fifty years on, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously repeat repeat history. Um, obviously, and the car that we were actually going to, <laughs> yeah, the car we were actually going to do it with was a Mustang, believe it or not. All right. Um, and Project Silver uh, was was not a GT at all; it was a Mustang, um, uh, and that was the car that we were going to do it with. Now. What quickly transpired was that for us to become competitive in that class was going to require the car to look an awful lot not like a Mustang, um, particularly around the frontal area. The frontal area of that car is absolutely not uh, designed for a fit for purpose. No, um, that does seem quite um, un-aerodynamic. It's <laughs> it's exactly. um, and there were a number of other areas that were absolutely... But basically... It became apparent after some time, although albeit quite a long time, we did an awful lot of work on it. Um, but it became apparent that it wasn't going to work, and at that point, the the, the whole project was shelved. Um, and actually, it was actually really only down to a very small number of people uh, um, that it ever happened. And a guy Rajner, who's now uh, the head of uh, North American operations, but at the time was the head of product development globally, um, basically took it upon himself to uh, to deliver that car. Um, everything, sometimes people accuse me of this being a kind of PR guff, but, but it's totally true. There were a very, very small number of us in the company who even knew the thing existed. Um, it was designed in, in what used to be an old stores cupboard in the basement of, um, of, uh, of a product development center in Dearborn. It was the only way into the room was actually using an old fashioned key, uh, of which only, I think six were actually issued. Um, so, so this was Black of, Ops then? <laughs> Skunk yeah, Works and all the rest of it. <laughs> There's a bloke called Bill Ford. Even he didn't know it was going on. It was proper Black Ops. Uh, and the car that they developed was designed entirely to do one thing and one thing only, which was to race and win at Le Mans. It, the fact that it turned out to be gorgeous and the fact that it turned out to be a kind of a passenger car, etc., was was all kind of a byproduct. That's a, that's a lucky bonus. <laughs> it was a lucky bonus, exactly that. Um, you know, the, the, the famous buttresses that people kind of get you know, very ex- you know, exercised about, very excited about. I don't know what you mean. I do not know what you mean at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> they're actually gorgeous. They're entirely functional. Um, they're designed entirely for aerodynamics purposes. Um, so so it, well, it was done in secrets. It, it was then shown to uh, to then Mark. How long, how long was this period of secrecy? That's a period, actually. Yeah, um... I'd have to go back through my records. I think I think it was around about a seven month period. Um, it was wow. very fast. Uh, yeah, I mean, bear in mind that's the design world. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand that. But oh, crikey, that 
you know, we again on the outside we hear how long things take, how you know how a massive team is involved, etc., etc. I, I know probably further down the line, the more you know, more than the six keys are handed out <laughs> and all the rest of it. So, but to get to the point where you're showing the viable product, you know, in in its form, the concept of it. That's that's amazing. So because this will be done, you know, as well as them doing their normal day job. Exactly right. Yeah, they did it. They did it at, at night time, um, or they did it at weekends. Uh, worked on it. Um, it was a very small group of hardcore group of designers who were joined unusually um, by the team that we knew were going to operate the uh, the race car. So they were involved from day one. Uh, a team called Multimatic who actually built the car in, in Canada. So they were involved up front. Um, so that's how deeply, uh, you know, we cared about winning, winning them on, <laughs> that we had those guys involved in the design up front. And, and actually on a number of occasions, you know, it was the race, the race team guys who said, look, you know, as beautiful as that may look, it just isn't going to work on the track. And, and the design guys had to come up with kind of clever solutions to that. So, um, it was a very single minded, it is a very single minded product. Um, and I don't, I don't think a lot of the people who've driven it, and certainly, you know, uh, uh, probably a fair number of the people who are going to own it are probably ever going to really fully understand just how capable that thing is because it really genuinely only fully comes alive alive when you're kind of at nine tenths or ten tenths on the race circuit um, and that's where suddenly the thing kind of really does make sense and you really understand what a magnificent achievement it is you know uh, I, I've, I've done this so I can tell you from a fact that poofing to the shots in it is is actually not a terribly rewarding experience. Um, I, I don't mind giving it a go, though. I mean, I'll, I'll take one <laughs> sure. for the team. <laughs> yeah, a few people told me that. Um, I can no, imagine. I, yes, you know, there must be a long load of emails in your inbox. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's all carbon fiber, um, which means that that there isn't a lot of soundproofing, so it's noisy as hell. Uh, when you roll over a stone, the stone flicks up in the aerodynamics are so clever that. The airflow around the car is such that those stones will then flick up uh, and make a noise inside. The engine at, at, at low revs is sounds pretty agricultural, really. Um, there's not a lot of soundproofing because soundproofing doesn't win you Le Mans. No. Um, so it's a fairly, you know, I say at low revs at low speed, you kind of wonder what all the fuss is about, and then and then you kind of you let you, you put the thing in trap mode and it drops down 50 mils and you put it on a circuit and and you let go and. I mean, holy cow, it's, it's like nothing you can imagine. It's quite the most astonishing experience. And I hope, and certainly we've chosen the customers to, to buy that car, we've chosen based on the fact that they will use it. Uh, and in particular, hopefully they'll use it on the circuit so that they really they get to experience what it's like to own something like that. Because, you know, without doing that, you'll never really fully understand the car. Yes, please don't any of them just put it in a box and put it to one side. Yeah, it's a funny story about that, actually. I, uh, I got approached uh, a few years ago by a guy. I was at the Frankfurt Motor Show on the stand, and uh, the, the German guys came to me and said, look, we've got a customer for the GT who'd like to talk to you. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And uh, this guy was a lovely, really nice guy and, and, uh, and, and taught me through with great passion about the cars that he owned. It turned out he had uh, somewhere in the region around 50 different cars. He, he had the Holy Trinity, so he had the P1, the LaFerrari, and the 918. Okay. Uh, I mean, this guy was proper petrolhead. Or at least so it seemed, because he got to the end of the uh, conversation, and, and his crowning glory, and I think what he felt was going to be the moment where I kind of you know, rushed into his arms and hand him a GT immediately, 
was that he said of the third, of the 50 cars he had, 30 of them were unregistered. Right. And I, I, uh, I looked at them and I said, do you, do you mean you've never driven any of them? And he said, yeah, no, those 30 are unregistered and will stay unregistered. And I, I politely had to break it to him that that almost certainly had ruled him out of any chance of owning a Ford GT. Because I said to him and I, you know, Anyone else, the point of that car, you know, it was never designed to make money for Ford Motor Company. Uh, it, it was never designed to. Well, no, you build it. a different SUV. <laughs> Absolutely. It was designed to do two things. One, win Le Mans. And that was its primary objective. Yeah. And two was to, to build the image of the brand. Um, and sitting in a garage unregistered somewhere is not going to do, you know, certainly not going to win Le Mans. <laughs> and it isn't going to build the brand. Um, we were very selective about how we chose, you know, the customers for that car. Uh, and one of the, the, the most important criteria is evidence that they were going to use the car. And there are ways that we can check that. Um, and we do. And we make sure that people are not going to leave them unregistered and not going to, to let them accumulate and, 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 and be an investment. We want them to be used because we want people to see them. We want people to enjoy the same you know, excitement that I got, you know, back when I was, you know, eight years old. Uh, and I remember seeing a, a Ferrari 328 roll down and, and just thinking that, you know, all my Christmases had come at once. Yeah. Um, it was just a magical moment for me. And I want, you know, it's very interesting when, whenever I take the car out or, I, or we show it at events or, or whatever, I'm, I'm at pains to make sure that any kid that comes anywhere near the car gets a chance to sit in it. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, whether they, they think it's attainable or not. I want five-year-old kids, I want 12-year-old girls, I want, you know, 10-year-old boys, I want them all to come and experience it, come and sit in it, you know, even turn the engine on, whatever it takes, because that's what it exists for, it exists to kindle the excitement and the passion in cars, um, and, and, and I think without it, you know, what are we what are we bothering doing it for, there's, there's just no point. No, that, that's uh, massively admirable, uh, and it is fantastic, and it is what halo car should be about it should be about somebody yeah. wants to put it on the wall as opposed to even in this day and age what drives me mad is going to motor shows is going to events and i was at good with, with cars names i shan't repeat them for opportunities number of brands who cordon their cars off who, who put barriers around them wouldn't let anyone near them wouldn't let them touch them i just thought you guys are totally missing the point all these people staring at these cars are, are for a brief minute a living dream. They're living the dream that maybe one day they might be able to own that car or, or might be able to even get sitting in it. And with the GT at Goodwood, we did the direct opposite. Um, every kid that came up, you know, we said to them, come and have a sit in the car. Let me talk to you about it. Let me talk to your dad and your mum about it. Because I want to share my passion and my love for this thing. In doing so, I hope you're going to come to dad. You had a great day and you got to sit in the car. I mean, how, how cool is that? Because I remember when I was eight or nine, that's all I wanted to do. Um, and, and I think we all of us, whether we're journalists or PR professionals or anyone in the industry, I think we owe it to ourselves to translate the passion that we have for what we do to, to those that maybe don't understand it or don't share it in the same way. Because otherwise, this whole industry is going, going to hell in a handcart because autonomous vehicles are going to come and we're going to be sitting in the back of those things. Having Absolutely. I, I cannot agree with you more because we've got the whole, we're being told repeatedly, and if we keep being told it, we'll all believe it, that um, nobody wants to buy cars. You know, nobody, you know, the, the yes, younger kids don't want to buy them, blah, blah, blah. But 
I don't believe that's true. Um, I just think we we need to, you know, we as in the whole industry, whether that's the people who are talking about or writing about or videoing about cars, as well as the people who are making cars, need to think about it a bit different. The old model doesn't necessarily Absolutely. work because people don't do that anymore. They don't go and get a company car generally. You know, it's 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 different ways of financing and things like that. And then now we are being, uh, you know, the, the industry uh, and particularly in the last two years, two and a half years, uh, the anti-car brigade have have got a voice now and they've got a very, very vocal voice. And some of the points that are being made about it are valid and have some merit. Yeah. But many of much of it, there's, there's the moment. There's no debate. There's no conversation because we we aren't allowed to be nuanced, and we need to get we need to get that back where we can be nuanced and we can have a conversation and say yes, we you know and have a negotiation. It's basically a negotiation. It's yes, we we understand these points, and we have these points, and I think we can we can both sides can get to this point, but neither extreme. Yeah, yes, I, th- I think that's true. Although. I, I do also think the industry owes it to itself to to kind of behave with with credibility. Mm. And, and some of the recent actions, and again, it's not fair to no, name no, no. name the brand, but I think we all know which one. You know, the actions of, of that brand brought the whole of the industry down because whether whether people remember it as being that particular brand or not, the point is it it it, it reflected badly on the industry as a whole. And I think yeah, because we, we the general perception you know, of the public was, well, they're all at it. And that is the general, but that is the, you know, when I talk to people at the school gates uh, and they they hear that I do a podcast on cars and go, oh, yeah, and it gets mentioned and all the rest of it. And then they say, well, yeah, but all the manufacturers are at it, aren't they? And these are people who who don't, who are not petrol heads. They they, they don't really care, but they want their car to get them from A to B as easily as possible, please, as cheaply and as simply as possible. Thank you. That's all I'm interested in. And their perception is that. So, you know, there's, there's, now there has to be an awful lot of work um, from uh, OEMs, but uh, an SMMT. But I think um, where the information is correct and the information is valid, then the people who are, like I say, the writing, you know, talking about or filming about it, have an opportunity to help that as well. Um, like I say, as long as it's 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 truthful and right. <laughs> everything which i think everybody's now yeah. double checking you know i don't i because yeah. of that so yeah, and, and and rightly mm. so you know it, it, we, we kind of we brought that level of scrutiny on ourselves in some respects but um but no i i don't i don't believe that that kids have no interest in cars i mean you know the the evidence cars like the gt and the mustang and the rs and the st are kind of evidence that that isn't the case i think mean, people still have a, a passion love for it what we've got to do is make it relevant within the context of a world that is changing. Um, so you, you can't just, you know, as wonderful as it is to have a five meter V8, you've got to look to the future. And, you know, we, as you probably heard, you know, we're already working now on a hybrid version of the Mustang. Mm-hmm. Now, that might fill, you know, purists with, with pure horror until you stop to think that actually hybrids can perform two roles. Two they can either perform a very, you know, a green role or they can actually perform a, a, a you know, a, a performance yeah. role. Exactly. You can have a performance hybrid, because you know filling that torque hole, you know filling uh, that early on, early low down in the rev range can actually give you uh, a fantastic boost. So actually, we can we can start to use some of these new technologies in, in clever and innovative kind of ways that hopefully 
you know, keep these cars relevant for the next generation. And that's, you know, that's what I'm sure what every OEM is looking at now is how can we, how can we keep that passion enthusiasm whilst at the same time making our cars, you know, greener and better for the environment. Does that, is that a bad thing because we're going to lose, you know, the V12s and the V10s and the V8s? Well, yes, it is from a pure petrol head perspective. I'll, I'll be sad to see those go and, and it'll be a heck of a long time before you actually finally see a V12 not on the road anymore because, you know, there's a plenty of heritage cars out there. But the fact is we've got to, we've got to try and deliver that same, that same incredible, uh, sensation, but we've just got to deliver it in a new and exciting way. And I, I personally, I think that's exciting. I don't, I don't, well, I was, I was going to say that because um, one of the questions I've got um, is about social media, and uh, you know I touched on it earlier where I said you know people people will type straight from the heart; they won't filter it, they won't think about it a lot of times. And you just uh, sort of highlighted it there, talking about a hybrid Mustang and purists go, oh no, that's a, the change is bad, change is bad. Oh. How much, um, I don't want to say pressure, but how much thought do you, you are now, are you now going to have to put in with the way that this information is communicated out to try and anticipate this sort of, uh, gut reaction from people so that you can, I'm not going to say, it's almost like heading it off at the pass, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it, it oddly probably simpler than it may sound. I think I think what you have to understand is what are people's fears um, from something like that. I mean, you know, Porsche had to face this with the KN, Bentley with the Bentayaga, we've got to face it with a with a Mustang hybrid. What are the fears that people have? I mean the fear is, you know, is it going to live up to the brand DNA? They they think not because they don't think an SUV can be a performance vehicle or they don't think a hybrid can be, you know, can be fun to drive. Um, probably because they've got, you know, other hybrids from another company in mind when they think about those mm-hmm. kind of those kind of attributes. So, so really, it's down to us to understand, right, what, what are you worried about? And, and I'll take those fears and I will address those head on. Um, and you can choose to then believe what I've got to say or not. I can do it through you know, the auspices of media, so a third party, uh, you know, third party group who can say, actually, you know what, I thought the idea of a Mustang hybrid was barking mad and I, I thought I'd hate it, but actually, you know what? It's pretty good fun to drive, and actually it's faster from 0 to 60 than, than the regular, um, you know, 5 liters of the 8 Mustang. So I think you just, I think you just have to, you have to take it on the chin. You have to accept that people are going to have very visceral, uh, reactions to, to things like that. Uh, but then, you know, the problem, I, I think the danger with all social media is that it's such, it's so immediate that you feel that you have to respond to it immediately mm-hmm. as well. And that isn't necessarily always the case. Actually, the response tells you a lot about what it is that consumers are worried about. And actually, if you if you learn from the response, you can actually then modify what you say and how you say it uh, accordingly. If, if all you do is lash out at somebody's response and tell them that, oh, you're a bit of an idiot, actually, the, the, the Mustang hybrid's going to invest in this size spread, they're not going to believe you. Um, and, and it's just going to fuel their um, fuel their thoughts on the matter. Um, better to understand what it is that, that's bothering them and address that accordingly. And I think, I think we will do that you know, with that and a number of other products. Okay. So do you, do you like social media? I do. I'm a huge fan of it, actually. Um, I, I, I love Twitter. I love uh, Instagram. Um, and sort of, uh, particularly Twitter. I've been, I've been on Twitter since 2008. Um, uh, I find it a fantastic information tool. Um, I found it a great way to hear directly from consumers in, in an unfiltered way. Uh, good and bad, yes, by the way. Definitely unfiltered. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but actually, you know what? 
unfiltered responses can be can be actually pretty powerful because they come very often come from the heart and not from the head. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say that it, that that must be uh, one of the you know all, all joking aside, but it must be one of the most useful because you are getting the truth. Someone yeah. is someone is someone is vented in one way or another, whether it's they're super excited or they're super disappointed and upset you are getting the warts and all reaction which if it was a questionnaire you wouldn't it that would be filtered because someone would be considering no absolutely and i think it's you know it 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 has its downsides of course it does i mean you know the fact that people can hide behind it and be anonymous and and be you know personally critical uh, i you know is clearly I, i don't like um the majority of the stuff i get on social media is you know if it isn't positive it's directed towards the company rather than me personally um and for that, for that reason, I'm happy to kind of maintain it and continue that way. I mean, when it becomes personal, well, I think that, that's a different matter altogether. And I think that's the point at which you have to start saying to people, look, yeah, hold on a second, distance, you need to distance me from the company. Mm. You know, what you, what you say about me is hurtful to me. Um, what you say about the company, company, I take very personally, but at the same time, I do understand that, you know, the company has probably had to make a decision to get to where it's got to. And not all those decisions are going to be, you know, things that consumers or people particularly love. But no, I, generally speaking, I love it. I, I, I'm, I'm a heavy user of it, and I'm all for it. Um, and, and to be honest, if you weren't, I, I think you'd be a lesser communicator. If your view on social media was that it was all bad, I think front chance are you probably aren't going to be in the modern environment. You're not going to end up probably doing particularly great at jobs. No, so, but it's, it's also uh, this I this winter has been very cathartic at the. Uh, I don't know, the half past five to half past six in the morning uh, when a certain cricket team happened to be in Australia, just seeing oh, seeing, yeah. seeing fellow sufferers pop up going, oh, I looked at the score, why did I do that? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, potentially one of the downsides of it. But, uh, I suppose I'd rather know than not. You can't, you can't escape. No, quite. There's been many conversations on Twitter that have involved the word influencer. What are what are your views on influencers, and do you think they they are actually um, valid and useful in uh, today's media? Because media now is such a I mean you t- you mentioned it early on such a broad thing now <laughs> really is it's it's no longer just a you know the magazines and the newspapers and a bit of telly maybe a radio program now and again I mean, the Anyone can do it. Hello, I'm here. Um, anyone can do it from the maybe even their own kitchen, something like that. So uh, the way that the the internet has allowed all of us the opportunity to to talk about this stuff. What what are your what are your views on all that? You know, I'm, honestly, I'm constantly surprised by how vehement some people are on influencers, um, and that's not to say that I don't understand why that might be. I, I think, especially if you're an established journalist, motoring journalist, who spent you know, years kind of honing and learning the craft and, and working your way up from the bottom to, to an established position where your opinion is hugely valued by both your readers and, and, and the manufacturers, etc. I get that you've, you've invested all that time and effort in that career, and you might find, you know, some 18-year-old kid with... Uh, with a with an iPhone in his hand, you know, something of an anathema. But the fact of the matter is, 
I think anyone who's got a problem with it is 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 really missing the point. Um, firstly, if these guys are sharing their passion and love for cars with an audience, we should celebrate mm-hmm. that. Whether, whether that audience is the same audience as you have, or, or the audience that you think you have, is really neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is, these influencers have an audience. They have people whose whose values uh, they share, whose opinions they trust. Um, and whose outputs they consume, you know, in vast numbers. Um, I absolutely think that everyone's got every right to uh, to kind of be a part of that world. I don't think we should be uh, parochial about it. I, I I don't turn up at a media drive and, and look at the media that come in and say, well, yeah, that guy clearly is under the age of 25 and therefore shouldn't be allowed to drive my mm. car. He's got every right to drive. He's got every right to have an opinion. Um, now that said, clearly there are there are, you know, the odd example of people who obviously you know, know absolutely nothing whatsoever about it, and whose views and values I don't personally share. But it, but again, it's kind of irrelevant. They have an audience that I need to, as a mass market brand, I need to to have access to. Um, I don't have the luxury, you know, if I'm if I'm a Ferrari or a, or a Bentley or whatever, I don't have the luxury of being able to pick and choose my audience. You know, we are a mass market brand. Uh, you know, selling millions and millions of vehicles around the world to consumers who range from 17 to, to you know, 102. It, it, to me, the fact that they've got an audience is what's interesting. Do I do I place the same level of personal speaking, by the way, this is, mm-hmm. do I place the same level of importance on the content that they create as I might do a Steve Copley or a Matt Fry or a, you know, whoever, whoever other journalist wants to use as an example? Well, I mean, the harsh reality is no, I don't, because I know, I know Matt and Steve very well. I know how hard they've worked to get to where they get to, and I know, having sat next to them and being driven by them, I know what exceptional, you know, uh, judges uh, of a car they are. Uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find very few people on the planet with that level of ability. Mm. Um, but I, but I don't. I would, and I'd say this to Matt and Steve if they were here. I, I wouldn't say that I. Just because uh, they've done that, and therefore values their content is valued that much more highly than, than anybody else's. The fact of the matter is, they produce content that serves their audience, and so do the influencers. And they they just do it, you know, sometimes wearing a silly hat and, and an iPhone in their hand. I, I really don't. So, so you approach it then that uh, depending on the the media that's being produced, you're you're uh, anticipating, maybe expecting. A particular way that a that the story will be told. Yeah, I mean, I you know, in the run up to the launch, I'll spend you know a fair amount of time behind the wheel of, uh, of the car we're launching, and I will by that point have already formulated my own views. I'll have formulated my list of positives and negatives and things that I think we may or may not get dinged on by the media. It's my my job internally within the company is to report back actually about what. You know, media and consumers are saying about our vehicles so that we can respond to those or, or not, if the case may be, but most of the time we do. Um, uh, so, yes, I'll spend my time on it. And clearly, if, if, if somebody turns up and, and writes something that is, you know, completely at the other end of the spectrum from what I've experienced and what, you know, my engineers have experienced, then, you know, the chances are I'll want to kind of phone them up and find out, you know, why that was. Mm-hmm. But by and large, Everybody experiences the car in pretty much the same way. Hopefully, the attributes that we spend all those years and years developing and refining and honing 
you know, come across when a consumer, a consumer drives that or when a journalist drives that. Um, I, you know, if, if, a, if an influencer has a concern about you know, the placement of the screen because he can't see his Facebook feed on the screen, I might personally think that's a bit, a bit silly and a bit spurious. But the fact of the matter is he's, he is absolutely responding to what his audience mm. care about. And if he's got an audience of people who actually, and, and let's be honest, in this day and age, people do care about that stuff very much. Um, if he's reporting that, then we, better, we, we should be listening to what he's got to say and, and choosing to respond or not, if, you know, as the case may be. But I, I, I have a real problem with people who, because I, I consider it a kind of a form of elitism. You know, my, my view is more important than your view because I've spent years holding my mm. Well. That may be the case, you know, on, on an individual basis, but to call your audience out as being better than my audience is absolutely not the right thing. To do. No, it's just no the, I, I agree with you. I think it depends on, uh, for me personally, as as someone trying to consume stuff, I'm interested to hear what is it that they're telling me. Is that actually any good? Mm. Understanding that the different mediums tell me and it tell me things in a different way. And we'll emphasise yeah. something that other mediums can't, uh, and that's um, that's the way I, I look to try and approach it. Um, and you know, I, I don't expect I don't expect um, you know a a detailed uh, road test with lots of stats and everything else in a two minute video, whereas I would from a monthly print magazine. You know, and, and, yeah. and it's appreciating, you know, the medium, what's the best format, you know, what's the best storytelling for the medium? And I think that's when I see that conversation go on, I think that's what sometimes gets forgotten. And I think it's what you were, you were, you know, I'm just sort of trying to echo what you were saying there, that um, it's these, all these people have an audience. Personally, we may not understand why they have that audience. Or agree with them having that audience or whatever, but no, no, but that's fine. But they have them, and you know, yeah, and if, if, if understand how consumers consume their media, my my children, you know, they're thirteen and ten, they don't watch television like I used to watch television. They don't even read books like I used to read books. They consume them their media via the power of YouTube yeah. um, and the and the power of influences uh, you know, on those sites. And these guys have a tremendous respect and authority amongst that that, that group mm-hmm. and. I think people need to understand, you know, what is what is the piece of content aiming to serve. In, in the, you know, I, I look at it from a purchase kind of perspective. So, you know, a, a piece of content from an influencer is very much at the top of the purchase funnel. So, this is content that is aiming to influence overall perceptions of the brand, maybe brand favorability, perhaps even purchase consideration. So it's it's at the top mm-hmm. end. But I look at the content of the likes of you know Auto Car and Auto Express and What Car and these kind of guys. They're, they're predominantly, they're further down the purchase funnel. They're, they're aiming towards people who are starting to get to the point where they're shopping. You know, they're, they're maybe down to their list of two or three cars. They want to see the comparison test. They want to understand what the various attributes are. Because these are, that's the point where they respect and they know to respect the opinions of the value journalists. Yeah. Um, because they, they, they will actually, you know, give them a serious pointer as to which way to go. I think it's just different content at different phases of the funnel. And I, I think, Everyone can coexist. I have no problem with people coexisting. I do understand traditional journalists who probably see some of these guys and think, you know, they look a bit of a wally and, and whatever. And I, but I also look at 
of those influences who thought these automotive games, saying, you know, you guys are just dinosaurs. Everyone can have their point of view. None of them are none of them are right, none of them are wrong. It's the truth. I just I, th- I care about it from the audience perspective. And I think as long as those guys have got a, an audience and a valued audience, I'm absolutely all for talking to them. Yeah. Sorry, I just sort of sprung the the I word on you there a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> okay, um, what I want to do though is I do want to go through your car history because I, I know we're pushing on for time here, and I'm, I'm very sorry about all this. Um, so, uh, what was your first car after you passed your test? Uh, I had a actually, I'm not saying this because I worked for Van, but I had a Ford Escort Mark II in white, uh, Bianca. <laughs> Uh, it was called, not for bit, uh, CVC 918. <laughs> and uh, it had um, it's been in some kind of shunts because the front axle was slightly bent. So it, it went round the uh, left hand corner <laughs> and, uh, and went round right hand. It was like an absolute disaster. Um, but it was mine and it was freedom and uh, it was all that I wanted and I loved it to bits. What did you move on to next? Uh, oh, a bit of a low point. I'm sorry to say. Uh, I unfortunately that car met its uh, it met its maker and, and needs master. Not, not around a right hand corner by any chance. <laughs> no, not a far more painful. Um, I, my mother uh, donated me her Honda Civic 1.6 automatic, um, which it's fair to say wasn't uh, wasn't a particular high point in my life. How old was it? Ooh, what age? Sorry, was it? How did? Like it would have been, do you know why I just can't remember across that 80? Okay, when, when automatics weren't great. Okay, fair enough. Oh, no, no, this is a shocker. Okay, okay, yeah. And then after that? Well, actually, after that, I actually got my first job at Ford. Um, so my first job car, little cracker, was a Cougar, but Cougar as in C-O-U-G-A-R rather than the SUV that we now know and love. <laughs> So it was a, uh, it was the, the Mercury-based uh, two-door kind of large, large um, coupe or coupe. Uh, I had the two-liter 16 valve, which I thought was absolutely the bee's knees um, until I drove it at the time. Then realised it was painfully slow, and dynamic was somewhat off, uh, off the best. We've got a, we've got a dark green one in town that someone has put six AA badges across the bottom underneath and so so this is uh, this is um an aged gentleman who is carrying on the fine tradition of having his aa badges with him oh yes he's very serious um well i mean i don't think you'll need the aa much because it was reliable there wasn't much else to be said for it but it was reliable. what did you move on to after that something quicker oh my gosh now then i mean well see the trouble is i was in a I was in a job that involved high mileage. Okay. So, and I know I'm not going to get any sympathy for this, but I, I got to the point where I was changing cars every two to three months. Um, so, I mean, amongst the early ones, I had a Mondeo Gear X automatic, which uh, which actually dynamically was great, although the gearbox was horrible. Um, I had a, 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 a various Fiestas. I had actually a surprisingly high point. I had a car, a sport car, if you remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was an absolute riot. Um, it was fantastic fun to drive. Um, you know, countless, countless focuses. Uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. I, I, I drove the range. I did also have, I had a four liter V6 Explorer um, when we sold those in the UK. When I say I, I use the word sold very loosely because I don't think we actually did sell very many of them. I sold one so, last week. Not, um, not a highlight, I must confess. But um, 
Yeah, if you saw it, if you saw a real rarity, there was a North Face version. Not the, yeah, version. Um, the best thing about that store was that I did it because I had it as a job car and I was tooling up and down the most ways. I got paid a certain amount per mile, which in a four liter V six six four was quite a lot. Yes. Yeah. So I discovered that actually, if you hypermiled it, um, you could you could net quite a lot of money back into bank balance every month. So uh, so it was quite useful in that space. It did break down. Um, oh gosh, I, I mean, literally, I've had I've had everything. So uh, I've had Jaguars, I've had Range Rover for a while when I was up at JLR, which was deeply wonderful. Apart from the fact it broke down twice, um, <laughs> yeah, I've kind of I've kind of literally all sorts in the states. I had uh, I started with an F one fifty pickup truck, um, which is surprisingly good fun in the snow because of course you've got rear wheel drive and no weight over the rear axle, so uh, you can get them prodigiously sideways. Um, uh, so that was good fun, and then I had a succession of Mustangs, um, which, you know, again in the snow, you know, taught you a heck of a lot about car control. Um, and with the benefit, with the benefit of snow tires, actually was uh, was was a, was a real hoot. So what are, what are you driving around in now? Uh, so again, I change them pretty regularly. So uh, uh, currently, I've got a Cougar Vignali, uh, which is all terribly plush. My wife has a S Max, and then I have a toy car in the garage, which probably. I, I shouldn't really mention because it isn't from the Ford stable. But, uh, no, but this is about uh, you. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it's from an area of uh, Stuttgart um, that, that specialises in uh, sports cars. <laughs> and, uh, and and does that get out of the garage often? It does. Yeah, it does. I, I take it out as often as I can. Actually, I have to get out this weekend. Uh, I, I I have a deep passion for all things. Oh, that one. Let's be honest. It's good. I have a deep passion for all things. And, uh, I own. Uh, a 1978 911 SC for, for a number of years before I went to America, which I, I loved with a passion and, and again taught me a fair degree about uh, the top overseer. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not always a good um, I always sort of said that I would uh, I'd go back, so I, I have a KMS in, in the garage, which uh, I, I, I think is just the most wonderful piece of engineering. It's a, a phenomenal car, not not in real terms that, that quick in inverted commas. Um, you know, there's, I mean, the Focus RS it would, would, would knock it to six from not to 60. But, you know, going around the corner, that thing is just a revelation. And, and you know, you don't understand steering feel until you drive one of those. And, and then you really understand what, what steering feel actually is. And uh, I, I love it with a with great passion. And as regular listeners to the show will know that I have to now say at this point, uh, I think it is the best looking car in the Porsche range at the moment. Because I am contractually obliged, even though I don't have a contract. <laughs> no, but I do. I think they. I think they are utterly wonderful looking cars. They are just gorgeous to look at. Everything is in perfect proportion, in my opinion. But uh, it is, and, and, and it's a wonderful car. It's a wonderful car to do anything. I mean, you, you can you can potter about in it, and all the controls are beautifully, they're beautifully weighted, they're beautifully laid out. Um, it's beautifully simple. Albeit that there's plenty of technology there, but it's beautifully simple. But but when you're uh, let's say pressing on, shall we? Um, it, it, everything about it is right, um, and the way it communicates back to the wheel is is a revelation. And, and I, I, yeah, as I say, I think it's uh, it's a masterclass uh, in, in in kind of car development from Porsche. Well, they're not exactly bad at it, but that car. I think, is a, uh, it's a yeah, they do seem to have exceeded themselves in that one. Uh, okay, uh, I want to move on to the quickfire questions now, if that's okay. Um, so I'm going to start, like I normally do, with asking what currently excites you about the motoring world. 
Um, whatever's coming next, and it sounds super easy to say, but I, I think legislation, people, people run scared of legislation and, and they see it as a bad thing. I think it drives innovation. Um, you see, think of all the great innovation that's happened in the car industry. A lot of it has been born out of necessity. Um, and I think if you give our engineers, you know, free reign to come up with innovative solutions, they will do. And, you know, in our case, things like EcoBoost and, and, and the one cylinder engine that we've got, um, you know, are perfect cases of point. I, I'm excited about where it's going to go. I'm, I'm not terrified about the future as many people are. <laughs> okay. Then what yeah. currently worries you about the matching world? Uh, um, I would say, uh, we, we touched on it earlier, I think probably the ambivalence of youth. Um, I think it worries me that people aren't growing up to aspire to a car in the same way as, as we did. Um, and I think, as I said before, I think it's kind of beholden to all of us to kind of uh, take responsibility for that. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't want you know, kids you know, growing up to lose, you know, lose the joy of driving, you know, that moment when you pass your test and, and you're, you're suddenly free, I think is just simply exceptional. So that worries me that, that we're losing a little bit of that, I think. Okay. Uh, you're not alone in that, by the way. Um, all right, now this could possibly be quite a tricky one for you, but what has been your favourite car to drive and why is that? Okay. So if you, so if well, you go off brand... You've got to get out here because you're going to establish why that is the case. So you know, I, I thought I'd couch these questions quite nicely to allow people to uh, to not get in too much trouble. <laughs> Have a job the next um, day, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I genuinely have been, and I consider myself one of the luckiest people in, in, in the world, and I've driven pretty much everything I would ever have wanted to drive. And I, I've done all three generations of GT, including... You know, the GT40, a couple of different versions of that. I've, I've driven along those D type of, I've driven XJ220 around the Mon. I've, uh, I've driven a Ferrari F40, which was just unbelievable. Um, so, so I've been unbelievably lucky. So the way I would approach that question is actually to say, what, what is the car, the drive that I remember the most? Uh, um, uh, and oddly enough, yeah, I, I drove, I was doing a, a, a pre-launch trip uh, for the Jaguar XF uh, quite a long time ago um, and we didn't have any excess that I could do the driving so uh, they instead they said look we've, we've modeled the dynamics of that car off the S-Type R um, and, and this would come as a huge surprise the S-Type R was, was absolutely a phenomenal motor car um, most people never realised just how good it was um, and I got to drive it down the route that we were looking to choose, which was the route Napoleon in the south of France, mm -hmm. uh, just above uh, Nice. Uh, and I was on my own. There was no one with me. Dreadful place to go to. It was super terrific. Um, the, weather was, the weather was fantastic. The roads were deserted. And I had just the most exceptional three or four hours of my life. I, 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 to give you an idea, I, I drained the tank in the S-Type uh, in 140 miles. Um, and it was a big-ass tank. Um, I, you know, if, if, if the members of the French gendarmerie happened to be listening in, you know, it wasn't me, but I, I, I didn't, I didn't spend much time anywhere close to the speed limit. And it was an exceptional car, an exceptional drive, and, and I think 
probably a surprising answer to questions. So I'm going to go well, that, that is, uh, no, fair enough. But that, that, I applaud that. And now I'm going to have to go to Auto Trader for uh, S Type R's and just see how available they it's are. A, it's a proper Q car sleeper. Well, exactly. Actually, I do I'll, like a sleeper. It's a cracker. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know it until it literally blitzes you at the lights. And, uh, and, and dynamically, you know, what they did to that thing, given, given its kind of underpinnings were a fairly kind of bland Lincoln, Lincoln underpinnings. Um, they did some pretty special things. There's a guy called Mike Cross, who works at Jaguar Land Rover, who's probably one of the genius uh, vehicle dynamicists in the world. And uh, I think he, he had something to do with it. It's, uh, it's a pretty exceptional car. Okay. Right, other end of the spectrum then. What has been your least favourite car to drive, and why was that? <laughs> okay, so here, here's the honest answer uh, you're ever going to get. So, so uh, I'll give it some context. When I was a kid growing up, I, I had a, a bedroom wall that was covered in posters of cars. Um, there were three cars that always stayed on the wall. The, the other posters kind of rotated, um, but there were three that, that never came down. Uh, one was a Lancer Delta Integral. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the... It was the um, the rally version of that car as it happened, but I'll take any. I'll take any. You're, one not, you're not fussy. <laughs> oh my god, what a great car! Uh, I mean, terrible for, for me to drive because I'm six foot four with long legs. So uh, it was, it's okay. It was I'm not, so I'll drive it for you. Don't worry. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, the second car was a Jaguar D-Type, um, which stayed on the wall, and, and I, I got to drive and was exceptional. The third car, because I was of that generation, um, was a Lamborghini Countach. Mm. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly in white mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, from memory uh, uh, there wasn't the only attractive thing in the poster <laughs> um, and uh, I got the chance to drive one and uh, I was unbelievably excited and, uh, and and you know many people have said you know never drive your dream you know because it'll, it'll never quite live up to it but I've driven a Lancer and I've driven a uh, I've driven an Integrale I've, I've driven a D-Type and they were both more than exceeded the dream and I got to drive this Countach, and it was absolutely dull. Oh my god, it was terrible. Um, it, it, it isn't very quick, which is a kind of a misconception. It's not that fast. It, everything they say, and, and, and you kind of don't believe it when you hear it. You know, it, it's it's heavy, and it, you can't see out of it. You know, the outcome it can't be that bad. Oh my god, it's horrific. Um, you never know where the car is on the road. Um, it, it, it's unbelievably unpleasant to to experience. Um, so, I mean, I, I could answer with many other kinds of affordable cars I've driven, but that, in terms of my, my the ratio from expectation to reality, I think it has to be probably, probably my least favourite. Okay, fair enough. You can you can have that one. Um, what car would you like to own next? Oh, crikey, that's a really good question. Um, cool. I would say if you. Well, I, I've not, I'm not driven it, and I probably never will, unfortunately, but I, I wouldn't half mind somebody handing me over the keys to GT2 RS. <laughs> um, that, that would be perfectly acceptable. I'm very fortunate. A friend of mine owns a, 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 a 4-litre, and, and that is a very, very special car. So, um, yeah, either, either of those would be perfectly acceptable. Um, yeah, you, you'd suffer enough. for it. Okay. Okay. No, never mind. Yeah, all right then. Um, so, what's your favourite road to drive on? Again, well, again I'm, a, I'm a very lucky boy, because I've had... Um, I've got to drive sort of all over the world as, as been part of my job, and the route Napoleon is, is pretty difficult to beat, um, just because you know it's the route Napoleon and, and, and the road is phenomenal. The, the only slight problem these days is that the police are somewhat more active in France than they ever used to be. Well, so. I did, did see something on um, the Grand Tour this season, and they they were 
not even subtly hinting that the gendarmes are quite keen these days to that people oh, yeah. do not speed. Yeah. yeah, it's becoming a major problem, unfortunately. I mean, they, they, they have got to the point where they'll actually take the car off you and leave you at the side of the road, which, uh, which has, has happened to, well, to people like that. Alan so, was yeah, telling me they're talking about making countryside 80, mile, uh, 80 kilometres per hour. They are. It's going to happen. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's going to make it more of a challenging place to do drive programmes, but, but the road... The road is so good that I think it's worth uh, it, it's worth a trip. Um, but in terms of uh, and the other one that's a problem these days is, is, is the World Evo Triangle um, for, for fans of, of Evo magazine, which I'm one um, because again, again I mean, the roads around there, Betsy Coed and, and, and down to Everest, uh, down to Allegheny, etc. I mean those roads are absolutely incredible. But unfortunately, again, the police have, have become rather uh, are rather aware of what goes on, and they, I wouldn't say they're no go zones, but you're not a million miles off. Uh, well, I, that's where I um, grew up formatively driving, so I know some of the yeah. non busily patrolled routes. Bless, bless with God's own road. I mean, there are, God there are some fantastic road. roads up there. Gave most of them to Wales, I think. Um, and those that you didn't, he gave to Scotland. So <laughs> I. I, I, I on balance, if, if take the police out of the equation, uh, I, I, I'd do the route Napoleon and then drive the Evo Triangle. I think I don't think it's the world's greatest drivers. Okay, they're, they're both good, that'll do. Um, so, right, <laughs> this might be a tricky one for you. Uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've experienced? <laughs> I've got to be quite careful now, haven't I? Yes. <laughs> chances, are, chances are we make it. Um, no, but you can quantify why you think it's pointless. It's okay. It's okay. See, I'm trying to give people okay. an out every time. Um, so, so I'll tell you. I'll tell you one that's always got my goat slightly is um, is performance cars that have different types of steering feel buttons. I've always struggled to to get my head around it. We we spend years and years perfecting and honing. Uh, you know, the way our vehicles steer and handle mm-hmm. and ride, etc. And then we go and give customers the choice to, to ruin that. Um, <laughs> I've never totally understood it. Ruin it. <laughs> um, yeah, steering feel buttons. I, 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 yeah, I've always had a, a bit of a problem with them because, you know, frankly, if, if you love the way a car steers, then you should love it whether you, it's steering at low speed or high speed or driving a car, you know, in, in, a, in an enthusiastic way or not, it, it should just steer well. I mean, the, the Cayman S we were talking about earlier, it doesn't have a, a steering wheel button, it doesn't have a steering feel button, no, it doesn't need it because it steers beautifully. Um, so I, I'd probably vote for that, partly also because we don't have very many of them on any of our four products, so I can probably get away with it. Good safe answer, well done. Um, so, uh, Penultimate question now. Who do you think I should talk to after you? Uh, I would say, if you can get to him, Ian Callum, um, the aforementioned head of design at Jaguar. Um, he is hugely entertaining, uh, wonderful company, knows, has forgotten more about cars than I will ever know, um, has some very scandalous stories, most of which he's prepared to tell, um, <laughs> and is, is basically a, a, a riot and, and, and great company. I, I, I would... Uh, if I had a kind of perfect dinner dinner table of, of kind of car related people around a table, uh, you know, he and Richard Perry Jones would absolutely be the first two names on the, on the list. He's, he's a wonderful company, so I go with. Okay, uh, not a big ask. That's fine. That's okay. I'll be able to sort that. 
<laughs> no, but certainly I, I would love to talk to him. Um, I think it'd be phenomenal. And he comes across uh, as this just genuinely nice bloke, um, which yes. not everybody does, uh, particularly somebody of his seniority and fame. So, um, yeah, I, I would no, love to. he's absolutely what you see. What you see is what you get with him. He, he's, he's a delightful uh, a delightful character and, and explains design in, in, in very simple ways, but also in very elegant ways. He's, and, you know, he really is a, a true talent. And, you know, when you look at the guy's portfolio, I mean, anyone who's got a, a DD7 on their portfolio is kind of pretty good by the way. <laughs> but then look at all the other stuff he's got there. And, Basically, the guys are genius, and uh, I, I, I absolutely have the highest respect. Yes, yes, yeah, excellent. Okay, then uh, just the last question then, which is, uh, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do or um, uh, keep in touch and, and just um, understand all the forwardness that goes on? Uh, Twitter is, is actually the best thing for me. I, I mean, I use I use most of the social media platforms, but Twitter is the one I'm I'm mildly addicted to. Um, and I am at jward35, just the letter J W A R D, three five, and that's and that's probably the best way. Okay, excellent. I'll make sure that there is a link in the show notes, so um, the people who listen to this will then, if they are not following you already, will then follow you. So, um, just leaves me to say thank you so much for coming on, and I really appreciate all the time, the significant amount of time you have uh, allowed me to waffle at you um, and to to pick your brain, and and I've got. Sack loads more questions I could ask you, but I, you know, it is the night is pushing on, and I don't want to push my luck. So uh, thank you so much uh, for coming <laughs> no on, Jay. Uh, really, really appreciate it's it. It's an absolute pleasure. Great to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks once again to Jay for coming on Review and chatting with me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag #RearViewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at the Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great guests who come on here. So until next time, that was Jay Ward. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.